Mufti Taki Usmani has summarized some of the rulings of Surah Nisa, and I will just do them very briefly with you. This surah was revealed in the early years after Hijra, shortly after the Battle of Uhud, and basically when the Muslim community was now living together as a society in Medina Manawara. So they needed new types of guidelines, new types of information, especially in what we call mu'amalat in terms of interpersonal dealings. And one of the most important aspects of interpersonal relationships is family life. And one of the centerpieces of family life are women. So certain then injunctions and commands relating to marriage, relating to divorce, relating to inheritance, and relating to treatment and regards and rights of women are revealed in the surah, and hence the surah has been named An-Nisa, which means women. Of note, there is no surah in Quran called Al-Rijal. There is no surah called men. Then you have here in verses number 7 to 14 of this surah some commandments pertaining to inheritance. Then from 15 to 35 some issues pertaining to marriage and divorce. However then because part of the interpersonal relationships of this Muslim society was unfortunately still that they were faced with threats and opposition from external forces such as continuing from the Jews and the surrounding areas of Medina Manawara and the Christians and the Mushrikeen so and Munafikeen, so there is some mention of them as well. So in verses 44 to 57 and 153 to 170, discussion of the Jews from verses 171 to 175, discussion of the Christians, and verses 60 to 70, as well as 137 to 152, discussion of Munafikeen. Given then that there were still attempts of aggression and oppression and injustice against the Muslims and therefore the deen of Islam does teach again to fight to repel that aggression with like aggression only and as long as that aggression is fighting against you or that fitna is there that needs to be removed in order to establish the freedom and supremacy of deen of Islam on earth. So therefore from verses 71 to 96 are some more additional ahkam, uh, some ayat pertaining to more ahkam of jihad. Then also this incident of hijra or migration from Makkah Makarmah to Medina Manawra and certain things related to that and consequences of that are verses 97 to 100. And then from verses 105 to 115, some interesting teachings on how to resolve disputes and differences and arguments. And from verses 116 to 126, mention of yet another enemy, another external force which is also afflicting the Ummah and that is shaitan. That is shaitan. So these are different things that Mufti Taqi Uthmani has highlighted in his overall summary of Surah Nisa. Ya yuhan nasuttaku rabbukum. Allah SWT begins this ayah with the commandment to do taqwa. And obviously this is something that is repeated over and over in Quran Al-Kareem to fear Allah SWT as he deserves to be feared. Here you will find that Allah SWT begins with the commandment to all of humanity. And the reason for this is that now you would think that taqwa is something you would expect from Allah the Namanu. But because here Allah SWT on the surah is going to be talking about the injunctions of taqwa, how to practice taqwa 
in terms of mu'amalat, in terms of interpersonal relations, so Allah Ta'ala wanted to make it clear that where ibadat or worship may be something that a person may feel is khasul mu'mineen, but as far as how to behave properly in terms of interpersonal relations and collective dealings and laws of family and society and disagreement, the Qur'anic teachings will pertain to all of humanity when it comes to that. So this is an ishara that the Qur'an al-Kareem contains the most humanist and the human rights way to engage in family and other forms of collective life. Secondly, it is also an ishara that these collective dealings of Islam will apply to all of humanity because they ideally should fall under the rule of Islam, but what will not apply is the laws of worship. So in ibadat, that's only for mu'mineen, there will be no compulsion in that. But as far as non-Muslims living under Muslim territory, they will also have to abide by the collective and social legal rulings of deen of Islam. And again, this is nothing that a person should try to present in some terrifying way. The exact same thing is there in the West. And in fact, I don't think the West actually read Quran necessarily, but they really have designed a system that is very close. So for example, in America, as far as worship goes, you have freedom of worship. But as far as the laws of marriage and divorce and commerce and business and interrelations and contract disputes and all of that and witness and testimony, you fall under the laws of the state. So the deen of Islam is saying the exact same thing, that a non-Muslim who lives under an Islamic state, as far as worship goes, they would be free. But as far as their mamulat, they would fall under the rules of the state. And this is why Allah Ta'ala said, Ya ayyuhan nas. Allah khalaqakum. So Allah Ta'ala is mentioning a second thing here, that Allah Ta'ala number one is your rub. And the first step in his rub, so rub means that being who is your sustainer, nourisher, caretaker, guardian. And the first step of that, what was the very first act of his rububiyyat? Obviously, alladhi khalaqakum, that that rub who created you, that was the first step. And created you from min nafsin wahida, from one single life form. And that one single life form is Sayyidina Adam alayhi salam. وَخَلَكَ minha, And then Allah Ta'ala created from that single life form, زَوْجَهَا Its mate or its spouse, is in it means Sayyidatana Hawa رَضِي Ta'ala Anha. وَبَثَّ مِنْهُمَا And then Allah Subhanahu propagated from the two of them, from Sayyidina Adam alayhi salam and Sayyidina Hawa رَضِي Anha, رِجَالًا كَثِيرًا وَالنِّسَاءَ So here you will, those of you know the Arabic language, sometimes... The adjective comes first, but it applies to both words. It means many, many multitudes of men and women. Alright. First thing that we understand here is obviously the end of Islam teaches us that Allah subhanahu first created Sayyidina Adam al-Islam. Second thing, so now there are actually three human beings that Allah Ta'ala has created in an unusual way. First is Sayyidina Adam al-Islam, no father or mother. Second, what we did so far in Quran, in order of what we did in Quran, was Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam, no, no father but a mother. Sayyidina Hawa radiallahu can be understood in some sense as also being created without a father and a mother because she's created from Sayyidina Adam alayhi salam, but not in the sense that he is her father per se. And obviously he's going to be actually her husband, right? So in a sense, she is also created without a father and a mother. She's created from him. This can be understood that Allah subhanahu wa is very easy if you understand that genetically. And in fact, when human genetics traces the human genome back to a common pool, one explanation of that could be tracing it back to the fossil record missing link of some monkey. And another explanation could also be that the human genome is traced back to a common pool because there was one marriage, Sayyidina Adam alayhi salam and Sayyidatana, Hawa radiyatana, and even Hawa came from Sayyidina Adam alayhi salam. So actually all 
the genes and what they call, and there's something in America called the Human Genome Project, which very foundations suggest that humans' genetic makeup is singular in nature. There's something that you can call singularly human. That is because you can trace it back to Sayyidina Adam alayhi salam. All right. At this issue of propagating from the many, according to some books of tafsir, Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Abbas, radiallahu is quoted as saying that they had 40 children, 20 men, and 20 women. 40 children, 20 men, and 20 women. Right? A woman would appreciate then what an incredible mother said that how to have 40 children, Allahu Akbar. That is not an easy task, both physically and in many, many other ways. Right? Okay, now we come to this issue of وَخَلَكَ minha zawjaha. So it comes in a hadith, and this hadith is in both Bukhari and Muslim. That the Prophet said that also explained that exactly how did this happen, and this hadith is in Bukhari and Muslim. I happen to have the one in Muslim in front of me, and that is that she was created from the bone of the rib of Sayyidina Adam alayhi Alright, now... The, the way this is trans, I'm going to translate this for you in a different way. So that she was created from the rib of Sayyidina Adam alayhi okay, this is clear. Number two, that she was created from something that had curvature in it. The word is not crookedness. Many people translate it as crookedness, right? And they suggest that women are crooked. She was created from something that had curvature in it. Therefore, the Prophet said that because of that, she can never remain singularly straight on any single thing because of her curvature. If you attempt to break her curvature, you will break her. And breaking her means divorce. Now what does this mean? This is where Nabi Karim Sallallahu is suggesting something what we call, even in psychology and neurology, neuroscience, gender differences. That a woman is more multifaceted or it doesn't mean crookedness. The word is curved. Now if you understand curved to be crooked, that's your own English translation. The Arabic just says curved. And all the Prophet I'm saying is that because of her nature of being curved, you can't expect her to do something. So curve, being curved is a metaphor for something. And being straight is also a metaphor for something. And the Prophet I'm said that you shouldn't try to change her nature. Whereas if it meant crooked, deen of Islam teaches that anybody with a crooked nature, man or woman, is supposed to be changed. That you're supposed to take out hasad, take out takabbar, take out lust, take out all crookedness. Entire deen of Islam came to take out crookedness. The deen of Islam came to do tazkiyah, to, to suggest, and, and that those there are many commandments of tazkiyah addressed to women. And women are singled out in Quran as well, mentioned specifically sabirin and sabirat. Qanateen and Qanatat are going to do this, ayah zakirin and zakirat. So it's clear that all the teachings of deen pertaining to tazkiyah, spiritual and moral purification, spiritual purification and moral rectification, apply to women. So then to take one hadith, again you can never understand one hadith when it goes in such a way to make it go against Quran. You cannot do it to believe in it. It, believe in a meaning that goes against Quran, nor can you try to attribute a meaning to it that goes against Quran in order to dismiss the hadith either. Right? So it cannot mean crookedness in character because Deen of Islam, also I'm saying is leave them on it. Leave them on that curvature. Deen of Islam does not let anyone remain crooked in character. No one should be left to remain crooked in character. So being curved and being straight is a metaphor for something else. 
we can understand that in modern day science there's a book by the, written by a leading professor in America called Brain Sex by Sex I mean Gender this was written by a team of neuroscientists and in that they say definitively they did research that women and men minds function differently and they talk about the left brain, the right brain. There's way too much to go into in a course like this, right? But they talk about creativity. They talk about arts. They talk about multidimensional versus single dimensional. They talk about being focused as opposed to not focused. There are certain differences there. So what Nabi Karim was just making an ishara to perhaps all of this to a notion of femininity versus masculinity. And femininity is curved, right? And certainly a woman also physically, if you look at her physical body, right? I mean... If you understand a woman physically is also more curved than a man, right? So both physically and emotionally, let's put it that way, a woman is curved in order to make her straight. In other words, to expect her to lose her femininity and adopt masculinity, that would be impossible and you will end up breaking her. You will end up breaking her spirit, you will break her temperament, you will break her and that will result in divorce. That's all the Prophet is saying in this hadith. And this is unnecessarily quoted by feminists to suggest that the deen of Islam, or even worse, Sayyidina Rasulullah thought women were crooked. I've already shown you the hadith where, to first show you the ayah where Allah SWT praised Sayyidina I mentioned to you hadith where the Prophet has praised great women. And I will show you in Quran where Allah Ta'ala talks about great women. Alright? So this has to be understood. Alright? And those men who were older and married, they may have some, and those women and sensible women as well, understand that there is a notion of femininity and masculinity. There is a difference in the emotional, not just physical, but also the emotional composition of a man and a woman. And Nabi Karim Sassam used a metaphor of being curved and being straight. Right? And being curved is not necessarily worse. Being curved can be viewed as more elegant, more refined, more multidimensional. Being straight has its own beauty and its own precision and its own sharpness. Alright. What does this mean? And fear Allah subhanahu wa that being, tasa'aluna means that you mutually make su'al over one another. It means that you mutually request rights over one another. So this is number one, talking about husband and wife. That in the name of Allah you were married and in the name of Allah you request one another to fulfill your rights. So you should also fear that same Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It means two things. That if you want your spouse to fulfill their rights over you, then you should fulfill the rights Allah ta'ala has over you. If you don't pray salah, if you don't fast in Ramadan, if you don't pay your zakah, if you don't follow the Islamic doctrines of appearance and dress and gender interaction, if you don't fulfill the rights that Allah Ta'ala has over you, then you should think that it's Allah Ta'ala who granted you in His name rights over your husband. Or Allah Ta'ala granted you in name rights over your wife. That's the first meaning. Second is that when you actually ask one another for the mutual rights that you are owed to one another, you should remember Allah Ta'ala when you do so. You should not be unrelenting and unforgiving over one another. You should not be one-sided that you ask for your rights to be fulfilled, but you are not concerned with fulfilling your rights that are due upon you. And in fact, the other than any relationship and mutual hukuk of rights is that you should be more precautious about fulfilling or, or, or sort of a dying sort of... Um, doing those things that are incumbent upon you before you try to ask that other person to do what is incumbent upon them for you. Alright? Okay, so this is what Allah is saying. Second thing, arham, again, if those of you know Arabic, this is ataf, wattukullah, in what areas you should fear Allah regarding the al-arham. Al-arham means family. 
family relationships, family ties. Literally, rahm here means womb. Arham means wombs. It means the ties and relationships that are born of wombs. Now here there's a hadith that Nabi Akrim mentioned and it's in the Sahih of Bukhari where the Prophet is that person who wants an increase in their risk, that person who wants an increase in their monetary sustenance from Allah SWT and wants long life, they should work hard to preserve the harmony in their family ties. And if you see this, this word rahim and arham comes from the same root rahamim of mercy, right? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is showing that family ties are born of mercy, are meant to propagate mercy, are meant to be a source of mercy, are meant to be dealt with on the basis of mercy. It's a big ishara for us even in the Arabic language itself. So Allah Ta'ala's beginning, you see these ayat, the fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when it comes to rights, because Allah is going to mention these mutual rights. Fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when it comes to family, because Allah is going to mention how to be an with one another in families. Inna Allaha kana alaykum raqiba. I told you this was coming a new description so far in Quran about Allah Subhanahu's sifat and relationship with us. Indeed, Allah Subhanahu is always and always perpetually raqib, intensely vigilant and watchful alaykum over you. Means that we should feel that we are under close observation, intense surveillance that Allah tells Raqib. And that is why this practice in Tasawwuf of Dhikr known as Muraqaba means to be as intensely aware of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as He is aware of us. To make our qalm, our spiritual heart, be as aware of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to lose oneself in Dhikrullah. To, that is what they mean by attaining fana. To be aware of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala such that nothing can distract us from Him because that is how aware Allah ta'ala is of us. There's no power that can distract or even diminish or dilute in one drop his awareness of us. Now Allah Subhanahu is going to mention then some ahkam of orphans, and it's going to be linked in some sense to some rulings of marriage. وَآتُوا yatama amwalahum, And you should give the orphans their assets. It can be translated as wealth, property, money, but normally the word to describe this in totality in English is their assets, whatever they may be. Sometimes you may have a poor orphan placed under your care that may be a few rupees. There may be a very rich orphan that is placed under your care. He may even have been left behind deeds and trusts and properties and buildings and shares and businesses, right? So give to the orphans the entirety of their assets. And you should not substitute that which is bad for that which is good. What does this mean? Now this literally means originally that if you were given something, you shouldn't use that for yourself and your children and later give the orphan something that is similar but is lower in quality. For example, let's say somebody places an orphan in your care and that orphan has three sweaters and they were very nice sweaters. So you made your own children wear those sweaters and you gave him three other sweaters that were of inferior quality or he was given some new blankets and you kept the new blankets for your family and put a used blanket on him on night to sleep. This is what it means. Do not trade, do not use their noble wealth and give them something that is inferior in quality even though if it may be the same in kind. Second, however, is this ayah can be taken generally to be a general teaching when it comes to financial exchange that don't trade, don't purchase, don't substitute what, don't substitute the bad for the good, don't substitute the impure for the pure. Right? Don't substitute the impure for the pure. And even beyond financial tradings, it can be just taken as a general principle in life. Right? That if you have the option or you have something pure, don't give it up for something that is impure. وَلَا تَاكُلُوا أَمْوَالَهُمْ 
and don't consume their assets. Sorry, and don't consume their assets. Illa amwalikum. It means commingled with your own assets. What does this mean? That don't put all their money in your account and just run the household like that. Because you should only spend, use their money for their own particular individual sustenance, right? It doesn't mean you lump their money to your bank account and you're just spending it. And then when they grow old, you said the money's left, I, you know, put your money in a household expenses account. But they didn't represent, you know, maybe they, what was the share of their money? What was the proportion of their money? So don't commingle their money with yours and in the name of that, consume their money. It means keep their money separate. Put it in a separate account, separate trust, separate fund, separate accounts. Don't commingle their assets. إِنَّهُ كَانَ هُوبًا كَبِيرًا Huban is another word you had for the first time, a tremendous sin. Kabir means enormous. Hub means a really mm, encompassing type of sin, a calamity sin, a black hole type of sin. Alright? So it's a, indeed an enormous black hole type of sin. If you were to do that, consume their assets in such a way. Now Allah Ta'ala is going to begin yet another ruling and now we're shifting to the ahkam of marriage. But for, there's a particular reason why there's a rupt, right? Which needs to be understood that why all of a sudden shifting from discussion of orphans to discussion of marriage, transition, in a And if you fear, if you fear, Allah tuksitu fil yatama, that you will not be just concerning the orphans, fankihu, then you should marry, matabalukum minan nisa'i, that you should marry whomsoever you find pleasing from amongst the women, masna, either two, wasulatha, either three, wuruba, either four. Fa in khiftum, and then after, thus, thereafter, if you fear, Allah ta'dilu, that you will not be able to be equitable to those two or three or four wives, fawahidatan, then you should marry only one, Oh, or you should marry ma malakat aymanukum, those legitimate bondswomen of yours. Thalika adna Allah. Okay, but leave that. This is enough. We're already a lot. There's some heavy stuff coming today. Polygamy, slavery. Allah Akbar. <laughs> I mean, lots of women upstairs, right? And the women outnumber you. I don't know by three to one or four to one, right? Saj, uh, obviously surah nisai. Right, so we should mention all these things. Okay, quite a few things came up. Number one was the rupt. The rupt here was that apparently it was a practice in pre-Islamic Arabia in Jahiliyyah. That many times what men would do is if a female orphan was given to them, they would marry them. They would marry them. But why would they marry them? Because they wanted to keep their wealth. They were worried that when the girl grows up and becomes of age, and that's coming later, that's coming shortly, when Allah returns to the ahkam of orphans, when the orphan comes of physical and emotional and intellectual maturity, then their assets have to be transferred to them, have to be handed over to them. And so one way some people got out of this, right, was by marrying the female orphans. And because they married the female orphans just for their wealth, this wasn't viewed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This was not viewed as a just thing to do. So first lesson, general lesson this is giving us is that a woman should never ever be married just for her wealth. And, she, and it also means a wealthy woman should learn this lesson and never let a man marry her for her wealth. And unfortunately you have men like that today. That they're scheming and they go and they look for women who are wealthy. And they outwardly praise them and win them over. But really all they're after are their money. If they can somehow manage to trick them out of the money before marriage, they will do that. If it requires marriage, they will marry them, but then they will treat them like dirt. 
after they marry them because all they wanted was their money. So wealthy women should be on guard against this. Lesson from Quran al-Kareem. And a man is being chastised by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Don't you dare do this. Right? Of course there may be some people who may genuinely want to marry that orphan. Maybe by orphan it may mean, you know, their best friend's daughter who is 12 or 13 and they themselves are 20. Right? And they may actually during the course of being their guardian and caretaker develop a genuine affection for them and they want to genuinely marry them. That is jayas. That is permissible. That is permissible. Right? But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is mentioning, right, that in many cases it's being done for the wrong reason and this is not a good thing. So what you should do instead, instead of those orphan girls, you should marry whomsoever you find pleasing from the women, whether they be two or they be three or they be four in number. All right. This is not to suggest, however, at the same time, this does not mean... Uh, okay, another thing that would happen, there's a hadith in Bukhari that Sayyidina Rasulullah said that sometime a guardian may marry an orphan A guardian may marry an orphan girl and not give her her meher. This was another thing. So he may give her, but because she was already his guardian, he would not give her her meher. So this is also something Sayyidina Rasulullah mentioned as unjust. So this would also fall under la tuksitu, that it would be unjust. All right. Third reason was that the girl, but it's coming from the same hadith in Bukhari, that the girl may, because she feels morally indebted to the guardian, Right? that he took care of me until I reached this age of marriage. She may not insist or stipulate the amount of mare that she is deserving, or she may not insist on receiving that mare. So this also is a broader lesson Dean of Islam is teaching, that when people cannot act in full capacity, when there are other conflicts of interest, put it that way, so there's a conflict of interest and for this girl that Allah Ta'ala is trying in Deen of Islam to protect the interests of those people whose interests may suffer or may be neglected or may be outright violated when a conflict of interest occurs. And this is exactly what Sayyidina Aisha radiallahu also a call attributed to her that she said that wealthy orphan girls are married just for their money and then they are neglected and this is a terrible thing. So Ummul Mu'maneen, Sayyidina Aisha Radha, obviously concerned about all of her spiritual daughters, especially the orphan girls from amongst them. All right. Next issue is this issue of marrying more than one woman. So this part, وَإِن خِفْتُمْ أَلَّا تَعْدِلُوا That if you are worried that you will not be equitable, what does that mean? That you will not be able to treat the multiple wives with fairness. This means in terms of financial equity, this means in terms of all types of sustenance, support, risk, kiswa. This means in terms of travel. This also means in fair distribution of nights. And there means many, many, there are many, many things that in the books of Islamic law have been mentioned as what exactly constitutes this equitable relationship. All right. Okay, polygamy is one of the most uh, misrepresented features of the deen of Islam, one of the most misunderstood features of the deen of Islam, one of the most lamented, surely by women, features of the deen of Islam. So it's a very delicate subject, and I'm going to offer to you a few comments today, because I can't teach you everything about nikah. And 
what I'm going to say is not the be-all and end-all of this topic, but I'm going to highlight a few things that many times many people don't think about. Many times many people don't think about. First of all, that the Deen of Islam does not conceive of having multiple wives the way it is practiced in certain societies in which the second wife or third wife or fourth wife or however many number are basically just mistresses and are kept secret from the family, kept secret from public society, are kept in some secret home and the man visits them secretly, right? That's not what the Deen of Islam, that's not, that would not be considered equitable and that would not be a permissible way to be married. And many, I say this because many people in Pakistan do it in such a way. Rather, it would be something maybe more closer to what you find amongst wealthy societies like Saudi Arabia or poor societies like Somalia. But either way, they've shown those in either affluence or poverty, but it's completely open. In Somalia, man lives with one, two, three, four wives. Uh, and I know people in Nigeria, actually, who have the same thing. And sometimes they all live in the same hut. It's completely open. Each one, in terms of public society, civil society, extended family, each one has the public position and rank and status as a wife. And in Saudi Arabia, well, those people are extremely rich. And they build, you know, four-story buildings with four-car garages. And they have four drivers and four maids and four of everything, and right? And four bank accounts and so. But again... The whole society knows. It's again, it's a public thing. I remember when I was young in my teens, my father used to take me for the summers for Geneva. And I remember you would see one Arab man walking with like 10, 15 Nikavi women. And I never understood until many years later what that was. So that probably was actually four wives and maybe some daughters and who knows, a couple of sisters. But it was also, again, so it's terms of public equity. In Pakistan, that is very rare. In Pakistan, that is very rare. Okay, so that is one thing to keep in mind. Secondly, the flip side to this is that the vast majority of women, if not almost every woman in the world, or at least every non-Somali Saudi woman in the world, and probably many even Somali and Saudi women who are the first wife of a man, they emotionally, it's not like they have changed their aqidah or naudhubillah, disbelieve in any ayah of Qur'an, but in terms of their emotions, they're extremely emotionally um, sad or hurt if their husband takes another wife. Right? Okay. Now first question, I'm going to handle it from both sides to be fair to everyone. Right? First question, sometimes the men ask that is it right for a woman to be hurt by this? If Allah Ta'ala has given me permission. You know, in all honesty, I would say that no man or woman has control over their emotions. And there's a very understandable reason why a woman may feel hurt is because it's viewed in some way that you're suggesting that she was not sufficient for you. Whether that be emotionally, whether that be physically, but she's not sufficient source of happiness for you. So I think we have to be fair and say that it's understandable that a woman would be deeply hurt by this. Second, we have to know that Allah Ta'ala here in Qur'an, and this is something all the scholars of tafsir that I've read up till now have mentioned and highlighted clearly, that this is just something that is merely permissible. Marrying more than one wife has no preference whatsoever. It is just barely, merely permissible. And there's a chance that it may even in some cases be disliked. And there may even be some cases like some of these cases being mentioned, right? If there's, because one of the original occasions of Revelation was that there were a lot of widows at Uhud. And so there are women who, the number of, uh, 
you know, a lot of men became shaheed at Uhud, right? And so the number of women exceeds the number of men. So there may be cases where it may be preferable also, right? Sometimes, many times you would have heard me give this example of permissibility and preferability and dislike that it would be permissible for me, let's say my own example, it would be permissible for me to, Kherto, I don't have any job anymore, but I used to say this to you when I used to teach at Lums, that it would be permissible for me if I was to quit my job and drive a rickshaw. Actually, now I have zero salary, right? But let's say I was to drive a rickshaw and tell my wife that we're going to move out, I don't know, to some faraway neighborhood and we're going to live in just one room with no AC and just one fan and no UPS on top of that and no fridge and don't you see many people are living like that? This would be jayas. I wouldn't be committing a sin, right? But obviously this would be disliked in Sharia, right? This would be disliked. So sometimes there are things that are permissible and the wife would be obviously very justifiably deeply affronted by such a decision and action of mine. So there are things that are permissible. So the higher level in Islam, in Mamulat is, right, to try not to do something that would hurt somebody else. And many of us may be guilty of that at many times in our life, right? But the deen of Islam wants that we should try not to hurt somebody else. Okay? On the flip side, right, it does mean that, so for the women, uh, they should make sure. Uh, if, I mean, sometimes it's the man's fault that he has unjustifiable demands and expectations from his wife, Right? And he is being unsatisfied, not legitimately unsatisfied, right? But there may be cases indeed, there must be cases, where sometimes a woman is not giving that man that emotional or otherwise support or comfort, and that man is actually genuinely dissatisfied. In such a case, then it would be better, right, that if in those cases, I'm not suggesting every case is like this, but in those cases that every wife, generally in the deen of Islam, every wife is taught that she should make her husband so happy with her that she is not just the source of all her happiness, but she is overflowing surplus of happiness. He would never dream of going anywhere else. And deen of Islam also teaches every man, and I'm going to do this with you a little bit later, because there's some other ayat, there's a very important ayat that is coming. So I'll do it with you when it comes, but Allah Ta'ala says in the Quran, and Sayyidina Rasulullah, I'm also going to say in a Sahih Hadith, and I'll do it just in a few minutes, that every man should also make every effort to be satisfied and pleased with his wife. So much so that Nabi Akareem Sallallahu said that if any husband even dislikes something about his believing wife, there's some characteristic, some feature, some trait that he dislikes about her, what should he do? He should look at and notice and appreciate all those other things about her that are indeed excellent and noble and worthy, right? So actually, Deen of Islam, I would say that Deen of Islam probably would have a preference that there should be one husband and one wife, right? Uh, and uh, certainly women would definitely have that preference. And in our own you know, tradition of the Sobof and our Mashaykh have always taught us, and our own Sheikh always teaches us that a man's second wife should be his deen. That's what our Sheikh says, that our Kiddush should be vidinin. In other words, doing khidmat of deen, right? Uh, and that you shouldn't, you wouldn't even have enough time based on whether you're studying deen, learning deen, practicing deen, teaching deen, spreading deen, that you wouldn't have enough time. All right? So these are some broad teachings, broad teachings. But notwithstanding that, of course, I'm not in any way trying to suggest the Quranic hukam is there and that permissibility is there and nobody can remove that permissibility. Okay, sometimes has, people ask this question as well, that can a woman put it as a shart in her nikanama that the husband is not 
allowed to get married again. So as far as the legal effect of such a shart, it's better that you ask a more senior practicing mufti this question. But as far as the spiritual aspect of the, can you make haram on someone but Allah Ta'ala has made halal on them, it doesn't seem to me to be befitting to do that, right? You cannot really make haram on someone, something that Allah Ta'ala has made halal on them. Even though I know that they're not trying to make it haram out in the deen, but they're trying to make it haram for X, I don't know. Something to think about. So if it's an unresolved issue in my mind, something to think about. Something to think about. Alright? At the flip side, some reports suggest that Sayyidina Rasulullah told Sayyidina Ali when he wanted to marry another woman, that he should not marry another woman as long as his daughter, Sayyidina Fatima was alive. Again, the men on the flip side will again use this, and they will say that, you know, that Sayyidina Ali was such a great man, and even if he was married to such a great woman as Sayyidina Fatima, and if he wanted to marry somebody else, shows that wanting to marry somebody else is not done out of lewdness, that we would ever accuse any sahaba, let alone Sayyidina Ali of doing this. However, the authenticity of this report that Sayyidina Ali wanted to marry a woman other than Sayyidina Fatima, the Prophet forbade him, the authenticity has been highly doubted by many of the scholars of Hadith. So we don't really know whether this case incident really happened, and therefore we have to be more hesitant on whether we can draw lessons right, and conclusions from an incident that we don't really know whether it happened. And that's quite a delicate, very, very delicate matter, because you're talking about Sahaba Ikram, you're talking about the daughter of the Prophet ﷺ, right? Uh, and I think really until we have more clear proof, uh, I would not want to draw any lessons or conclusions either way uh, from any such incident that is not so greatly proven. All right. Here, another thing to say is that so the West often mocks this ruling of polygamy. Now that I find inexcusable. If a believing Muslim woman who is the first wife of a Muslim man has, a, has certain emotional reservations about this, that's one thing. For the West to have reservations about this is absolutely outrageous because they are practicing mass infidelity, mass adultery, both premarital, marital, extramarital, not just their celebrities and actors and politicians and governors and senators, but massively in society. And so there's no doubt also, and that's what I told you, right, in terms of preferability. So there's no doubt in Deen of Islam that if a man is in such a situation, where he is not able to do what's preferable. So let's say, let's say we accept that position just tentatively. I'm not saying, I'm not making any definitive statements. But let's say we tentatively accept that it's preferable for a man not to marry more than one wife. But if he cannot bring himself to that level of preferability, it is better for him to marry a second wife if it means saving himself from adultery and fornication. Right? Because you will see later on in Surah Nur, when we, you will see later on in the Tafsir of Surah Nur, that the punishment for the adultery of a married man is stoning to death. And if they don't make tawbah and don't get that expiation and punishment in this world, then it's an enormous punishment in Jahannam. So better that a man. So first preference is that a person has enough fortitude and sabr and patience and kindness, right? To be with one wife. But second, before infidelity and adultery, would be then to marry a second wife. All right? Okay? And so, so and that's something that the West uh, really, you know, and it's amazing, you know, that they, these days, especially in America, they are making everything lawful. Except polygamy. You can have same-sex. They have all types of marriages there. 
that they are now making lawful, right? So uh, something to think about. Khair, it's a very sensitive subject for women, and this is all we can really offer you on this topic at this time in the story. All right. Yeah, okay, next subject. Oh, ma malakat e manukum. Okay, now this is a very, very tricky subject. And this, in my experience of teaching, you know, over a thousand university students the basics of Islam, this is the absolute single most difficult and thorny issue in their minds. Right? And therefore, I have to spend some time, notwithstanding that everybody wants me to go faster, right? Although I will tell you, don't look at Quran. I've looked at the books of Tafsir. My pace as far as books of Tafsir isn't as far behind as you think because the books of Tafsir do spend much, much more time on the earlier Jews. And when they start flying, I will start, inshallah, also flying. Right? Okay, first of all, slavery. Generally slavery, before I come to this issue. Slavery pre-existed the deen of Islam, fact number one. Fact number two, the... Deen of Islam eliminated all types of slavery except one. Fact number one, slavery in all types of forms and ways and kinds existed before Deen of Islam, which includes specifically what we call enslavement. Enslavement means you kidnap someone and you make them your slave. Like the British kidnapped millions of blacks in Africa and made them their slaves, and after kidnapping them, sent them to America. Ajeeb, right? It wasn't enough that they stole the diamonds and gold, they stole the people. So immediately Islam forbade enslavement in that sense. And in every single sense, so that was point number two, Islam forbade enslavement in this sense, stealing people, right? Kidnapping them and making them in every single sense except one. And that is number three. And that is in a jihad. Now again, we've explained jihad to you many times before. That is when you engage in fighting against those who fight against you. That you engage in aggression only to the level of those who aggress against you. And that you even may fight them to the death, but only because their fitna and their oppression and their injustice of you is worse than the death that is caused by fighting them. If in the course of such a military engagement, there are women who are captured, or men who were captured, right? Then what happens to those prisoners of war? And what it means, again, understand here, what happens to those men and women who are trying to kill Muslims? So you can view this as a punishment for, and some of them would have succeeded, by the way. It doesn't mean you captured them before, so they may have killed five Sahaba before you captured them, right? So what happens to those men and women who are men? So start with the men first, right? Let me do men first. What happens to those men who are guilty of either murdering Muslims or attacking Muslims with the intent to murder, right? Because there's also crime in America, homicide or intended homicide. So even in Western systems, this is viewed as a great crime. And they're subject to years and years and sometimes life imprisonment. Okay. So the deen of Islam said that as far as men goes, and as far as women, you have other options actually. You had options. One option is to imprison them for the men in jail. Second option is to ransom them off, right? To relatives or the enemy powers, right? And third option is to make them your slave. All right. Now I want to make clear that the word slave do not, because most of us, because we've studied Western history, when we hear the word slave, we think about the Negroes in chains being taken to America, right? That's not the Islamic concept. 
of keeping the man as a slave. There's no chains on him. There's no beating allowed on him. There's no whipping allowed on him. Like the, all the black slaves taken by the West were chained, beat, and whipped. It comes in hadith that you must give them the same food that you eat. Whereas the slaves were given terrible food and sometimes no food to eat. Right? That you must keep them in your homes at the level of a, of a munasib mi'yad in terms of a sort of a moderate level in which you would keep somebody from your own household. Alright? So it's a radically different concept. You cannot work them 24 hours a day and break their backs and sending them 18 hours in the mines. You can't do that with them. They're just your khadim. They're more like servants. You could call them indentured servants. That would be a more fancy English way to put it. So you're not, you, there's no slave labor. You cannot send them for 18 hours a day to work in the mines. You can't do that. You can only take for them the munasib amount of work that a person does. So that would be 40 hours of work. 40 hour work at the munasib level of intensity. Alright? Okay. Fourth, or next is that you're, I'm still on men. I'm going to come to women in a moment, right? Next is that you're going to, you have to make dawah to them. You have to make dawah to them. Hopefully that if they, and one of the purposes and reasons, by the way, was that so if they live, if you put them in jail, they won't learn Islam. If they live with you and see the beauty of the Islamic lifestyle and household, that itself will be a dawah. So again, this was about those Muslims who sahaba, whose homes were screaming dawah, right? Whose homes were living embodiments of the peace and tranquility that a Muslim deen brings. And last but not least, the deen of Islam, even once you had such people, only such people as slaves, deen of Islam strongly incentivized freeing such slaves in many crimes and sins, the kafara, one way to offer kafara expression is to free a slave. And Nabiya Karim Sosa mentioned in countless hadith the virtues and merits of freeing slaves. So in history, due to all of these features, slavery was ended in the deen of Islam. Even when they continued having jihad and getting, they still freed them. So the historical record shows that the teachings of the deen of Islam about the importance and benefits of freeing slaves did motivate people's behavior so much that even though military engagements continued and sometimes male slaves were achieved, so much freedom took place that there are no slaves. And they haven't been slaves for many, many years or centuries in the deen of Islam. Some people have said that there are one or two remote areas in the African desert where they, this may continue, right? But not in the women's sense, only in the male sense. Allahu I don't know. But if that is the case, it's going to be in the number of hundreds, not even thousands. And that would be the same way that I told you, like an indentured servant, like a khadim, right? So there may be a Nubian khadim of an Arab who lives in the desert, Bedouin Arab who lives in the desert of Mortania, and they live pretty much like brothers. If you were to visit the desert people, that's how they live anyway. Okay, now you come to the issue of slavery of women. Every single thing I told you about men is the same for women except two things. Number one is the option. You can ransom the women off as well. That's also an option. The option to imprison them in jail is not there. So if you don't ransom them off, then you must keep them in your home. So that's the first difference. Right? That's the first difference. Second difference is what is being mentioned here now. Obviously, I mean, that's, you know, so that's being mentioned here in this ayah that you're allowed. Now, literally what it's saying, this ayah actually is saying that you may marry them, right? Because it was about nikah, right? Funke who, either you marry two, three, or four, or one, or you marry a slave woman of yours. So that is fine. 
that if there's a woman who is a slave and she has to be a believer, right? Because a man is not allowed to marry a mushrik, whether she's a slave or free woman or not, right? So marrying a slave woman, I don't think anybody has a problem with that, right? Okay. And there are many hadith that Nabiya Kareem Sassam also said that if the slave women accept Islam, it is of great virtue and merit and reward that you free them. Or that you marry them. And by which they would also get freed if you marry them. Okay? Alright. And slavery is not perpetuated either. Then any children born of this, they're also, they would be considered to be free. However, although this eye isn't specifically talking about that, I wanted to bring that up as there's another teaching of Islam that the man can have um, intimate relations with the bond woman. That's how I will use this word, right? Bonds woman. The woman who they have in their bond, in their grip, in their hold. All right. This is something that perplexes people. All right. Now, I have looked in, certainly in Quran, it's not there. From whatever I've looked in Hadith, there's no explicit mention that is this done with their permission or not. So there are two possibilities here. One would be that the deen of Islam would allow a Muslim man to have intimate relations with a bondswoman against her permission. This in English is called rape. Yes? This in English is called rape. Alright. And this is the language, right, that is used by the West as when they're trying to attack Islam and then certainly then it enters into the minds of our westernized and western education system based youth that what type of religion would allow a man to rape a woman under any circumstances. All right. Like I was telling you, I've not found anywhere in the Quran that it suggests that this is against the wish of women. Nor have I found anywhere in Hadith that this suggests that this will take place against the wish of the woman. So there's another possibility that this is referring to, and there are other ayat that are going to come in this phrase, ma malakat a manukum, literally means that which your right hands possess. Right hand denotes your milkiyat, right? So that's why I'm calling it bondswoman. There's another possibility that it can refer to the fact that there is a woman who is a slave in some Muslim man's house and they develop some feelings of attraction for one another. And let's say that Muslim man is unable to marry her or she has yet to accept Islam or he already has four wives. There could be many case scenarios in which Right? Uh, they would not be able to do this act through the bond of nikah. Alright? If due to their mutual agreement, let's say a question arose, right? That if she wants and I want, would it be permissible for me to have intimate relations with her even though I've not taken her into nikah yet? So the deen of Islam is answering that, that yes, it is permissible to do that if that is something that she allows. The reason I suggest this is because, number one, there is no clear, explicit mention of any act happening with a woman when she was unwilling. Number two, if you look at the rest of the teachings of the deen, and you're going to see that I'm going to highlight that to you very strongly when they come, and a few of it is coming right now today, that the deen of Islam strongly emphasizes chastity and purity and suppressing your lustful desires. That man who on the one hand is being told that he has to suppress his lustful desires so much so that he has to lower his gaze. At the same time he's being told that he can even have intimate relations with the woman who is his bondswoman, even if she doesn't wish, 
this would not seem this would be pulling a man in two opposite directions this would be pulling a man in two opposite directions right but in any case here the mention in this ayah is of marriage right and that is being mentioned that if you're not able then you, to marry equitably two, three, or four, then you can marry one or you may marry one or more of those bondswomen who happen to be in your possession. Okay, this verse can mean two things. Number one, it can mean that then the dhalika could refer to this and of this act of marrying one only or one plus one or multiple bondswomen is closer is closer means it's more this muftitaki Usmani tafsir that is closer or more enabling you to abstain from injustice. And second tafsir is that that would be easier for you not to go astray. It's a slight difference. I don't know if I'm explaining to you properly. The first way is that if you were to just marry one or marry the bondswomen, that would be closer than being unjust. In other words, closer and would safeguard you from falling into the possibility inequitably treating multiple wives, inequitably being unjust. And the second way is that this way will be easier for you from falling into injustice and going wrong. I don't think you can appreciate the difference in English, right? In the Urdu, there was a subtle difference between these two tafsirs. Either way, if a person fears that they will be unjust as being repeated here, you can just think it that way, they should just marry one. Here Allah Spanta is saying is that whichever women you may marry, one or more, or from the believing free women or from the believing bonds women, you must offer and give, you must give to each and every one of such women who you take in nikah, their dowers. Actually dower may be plural of dowry, right? Their dower or their dowers. Nihlatan. Nehlatan has been translated in different ways, means graciously, happily, joyously, rejoicefully, without any feeling of stinginess, right, number one, graciously, and also to show appreciatively. So it means graciously and appreciatively. Number one, it's referring to an absence of feeling stingy. And number two, it should be izhari, izhari it should be a demonstration of happiness and love. فَإِن تِبْنَ لَكُمْ Okay, now if you... إِن تِبْنَ لَكُمْ أَنْ شَيْءٍ مِّنْهُ نَفْسًا فَكُلُوءُ حَنِيئًا مَرِيئًا Alright. If they waver, literally فَإِن تِبْنَ means if they favor you. It means if they waver أَنْ شَيْءٍ مِّنْهُ If they waver anything, any drop, any penny, any portion, مِّنْهُ from that mare. نَفْسًا Of their own accord. Not due to being indebted to you or influenced by you, if they choose to waive it, فَقُلُوهُ then you may partake of that portion of the meher that they waive for you yourself. Hani am Maria, and there are many ways people have translated this wholesome and joyful, right? In other words, without any tinge of guilt, Hani am wholesome, without any tinge of guilt. And Maria, that the man can be happy now. So first the man gives it to the woman, Nehlatan, as a demonstration of happiness so she feels appreciated and if the woman genuinely entirely of her own accords wishes to waive it forego some of it give some back to him or let him tell him he doesn't have to give it then he can also be Maria he can also be joyful and be happy that she has shown me some love through this token of waving part of her mare alright okay alright alhamdulillah Grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He made us reach successfully.
verse number four. <laughs> and we're still sweating. Next thing Allah Ta'ala goes back to the orphans. And do not grant the feeble-minded, means those orphans who have not reached mental capacity yet, amwalakum. Now it literally means their wealth. Here Allah Ta'ala has used the term, akum, your wealth. It doesn't mean, it means don't give them their wealth. But what it means is that it's so much in your possession, so there are different ways Mufassirin have said here. Number one, that it's not yours in terms of possession, but it's yours in terms of guarding. It's yours in terms of watching over, and it's yours in terms of you will determine whether they, when and whether and what, not whether. You will determine when they are eligible for it to be transferred to them. But it is their wealth. Okay? Alright. Allati ja'alallahu lakum qiyaman. That which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made you, number one, to serve the meaning of qiyaman has made you custodians over that wealth. So it's yours in the sense that you were custodian over it. وَرْزُقُوهُمْ And you should provide for them fiha by means of their wealth. وَقْسُوهُمْ And you should clothe them. It means clothe them and like I told you, provide for their basic necessities as well. وَقُولُوا لَهُمْ قَوْلًا مَعْرُوفًا And that you'd speak to them and address them with kind and considerate and words that are considered to be noble, fair and proper. وَمْتَلُوا الْيَتَامَى And you should test the orphans. Test them. حَتَّى إِذَا بَلُغُوا النِّكَاءَ Until they reach the age of marriage. What does it mean here? Assess them by means of testing them, right? In what way? That you have to see whether they have reached, whether they have reached emotional and intellectual maturity enough that they can manage their own assets and estate or not. So the first thing is balughun nikah, it means until they reach the age of marriage, that is referring to physical puberty. And just to explain that too, in a simple way, uh, a man and a woman attain physical puberty when they attain the ability and also at least once in act are enabled to make them uh, once in act become junub. Okay? And to the greater impurity, men, and for women it's menstrual cycle and for men it's something else. Right? That means a person has reached the age of nikah, they have reached physical maturity. However, فَإِنْ anustum Thereafter, if you perceive minhum rushda. If you perceive in them proper understanding, which means after the physical, and by the way, if none of those signs appears, your default, the fatwa is that you reach physical puberty according to 15 lunar years. Whichever is, right? If, you, if none of those signs appears, then you are considered to be physically mature at 15 lunar years. But then after that, you are going to test them. Why? In order to wait and see if you perceive that they have proper understanding. Do they have intellectual and emotional maturity yet? Is it a 15-year-old girl who again, some twisted guy is going to proposition her in marriage and just take all her money away that you've carefully safeguarded her for so many years, right? So if she doesn't have that, to only give it to them, fadfa'u. And then, after you obtain and ascertain that they are on rushd, then fadfa'u, then hand over ilayhim amwaluhum, hand over to them their assets. Okay, so there's a physical age and there's an emotional and the discretion has been left to the custodian and guardian. But if he's felt not to be doing that properly, then the qazi or the emir, the court and the ruler can make that determination as well. This is a big lesson for us that shows us, and you would know many times I used to say this, that one is your physical age and one is your emotional age and one is your spiritual age. So many times a Pakistani 20-year-old is physically 20 years old, emotionally 17 and a half, and spiritually 9 and a half. Right? In terms of spiritually means in terms of taqwa, sabr, shukr, salah, istiqamat. Right? So there are different ways, there are different levels of development that a person has. Alright? 
وَلَا تَقُلُوهَا Second commandment Allah Ta'ala is giving regarding the wealth of the orphans. Oh, I missed a very important thing. I have to come back to it. وَلَا تَقُلُوهَا Second thing Allah Ta'ala is do not consume their assets Israfan in extravagance. In other words, when you are using it to support them, don't be extravagant. By supporting them doesn't mean that, you know, when they're 13, they need the vacation and a five-star hotel to London and you spend it of their wealth and you go along as the guardian. Or they need to fly first class and you get the first class as the guardian. Right? So don't spend it in extravagance. Right? وَبِدَارًا And don't spend it in haste. Ayakbaru lest they become grow old or mean before they come grow old. It means don't consume it all before they come of age, of all that age of all those maturities in which you transfer to them and then there's nothing or very little left for them. When mankana ghaniyan, and that person who is rich and that guardian and custodian of an orphan who is rich and affluent, falyastafif, he should abstain from even using their money, he should spend on them themselves if he's rich. وَمَنْ كَانَ فَقِيرًا And that custodian and guardian of an orphan who is poor himself, فَلْيَاكُلْ Then he may partake of the estate of the orphan, right? بِالْمَعْرُوفِ With what is known to be fair and proper. So this is referring to the fact that can somebody draw a salary for being a guardian? It can mean draw an expense account or a salary for being a guardian. So the answer here is that if the person themselves is wealthy, is not needy, then they cannot draw a salary from the trust or estate or fund of the orphan for services that they render to them as a guardian. However, if they are poor, they're allowed to draw some salary or fee, if you will, for being a guardian. If they're so poor, they're the Quranic definition of faqir. But they should only do so to the extent that they need, that they, that they need to meet their basic necessities or slight comforts. Right? Okay. فَإِذَا دَفَعْتُمْ إِلَيْهِمْ And once you transfer to them amalahum their assets, فَأَشْهِدُوا إِلَيْهِمْ Then you should call witnesses to testify, uh, you should call people to witness that. So here Allah Ta'ala is protecting the guardian as well. Lest anyone later say that, oh, they never gave me the money. Right? So when you transfer it, transfer it, and the entire record and history of it, and document it in front of witnesses, Allah Ta'ala is protecting so many things up till now, protecting the orphans, but Allah Ta'ala also wants to protect the guardians. Right? Lest there should be some false accusations or misunderstandings later on of how they managed, or some false allegation and misappropriation later on. And in all of this affair, وَكَفَى بِاللَّهِ hasiba, And indeed sufficient would be Allah subhanahu ta'ala for hasib. In other words, Allah subhanahu ta'ala is the best of accounters. In reality, He will have all of the accounting. Alright. Before we move to the issues of inheritance that are coming next, there's one thing I had to go if you go back, and I left this. مَا تَابَ لَكُمْ مِنَ النِّسَى I was so worried about handling the polygamy thing, right, that I forgot to tell you. Mataba, what does it mean? Who pleases you from women? Alright? So Sayyidina Rasulullah said in the hadith in Bukhari that women are normally married for four reasons. Their beauty, their wealth, their lineage, and their piety. And you should choose a woman on the basis of her piety. Allahu Akbar. You should choose a woman on the basis of her piety. And that means if you make that choice and later on, if she may have less wealth or less lineage or less beauty, or you can add to that other sifat personality, and that's coming later, I'm going to do that, but you should notice her piety. And that's a mu'min. You see, the problem is, another reason why we have marriage problems is because our iman isn't strong enough. Because the strong mu'min would notice the taqwa in his wife and be so pleased by that, it would, and that joy over her taqwa would enable him to overlook other things.
And a weak believer is not going to be so strong, so he won't take so much joy in the taqwa of his wife, and then he may notice other things about her. And the flip side, if the woman isn't strong in her iman, then she doesn't, if the woman doesn't have that taqwa, right, such that her husband could rejoice on seeing that, right, so actually deen of Islam works for muttaqeen. We have to understand that. And a lot of the harmony and barakat and blessings that Allah Ta'ala has put in husband and wife is because it's a mutual relationship of taqwa. And when either one or both don't have that, then they're not going to have those harmony and blessings. If it's not first and foremost a spiritual union, then they won't have that harmony and blessings. Right? So that is the teaching of deen, that that is what is supposed to please a man before and during and after marriage as well. Alright, that was an important thing I left. Now go back to verse number... Um, seven onwards. Now here comes some ahkam of inheritance. I'm not going to do these in great detail with you because we're not really here to do the laws of inheritance, but highlight just a few lessons that come from this. Alright. So to the men will be given the share from that which their parents leave behind, that which their parents leave behind and their relatives. And to women will also be given their share from that which their parents leave behind and their relatives. Whether that which is left behind is small estate, small assets, or it is a lot of assets, either way, whether small or large, both men and women will get their particular portion, their share, the appointed apportioned share, which is known as nasib. Here also the word nasib is suggesting that it is a separated, distinctly carved out amount. And nobody can take away that naseeb. Nobody can change the naseeb that Allah Ta'ala wants to give someone. Alright. Naseebun mafrudha. Naseebun means that it's in a portion. Mafrudh means it has been stipulated and mandated and fixed by Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. Stipulated, mandated and fixed by Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. وَإِذَا حَذَرَ الْقِسْمَةَ And now here, on this ayah, ayah number 8, is mentioning yet another feature, that sometimes when the estate, the assets of the deceased are being distributed to the stipulated designated heirs, sometimes other people show up. إِذَا حَذَرَ If other people show up, pitch up, literally means present themselves, الْقِسْمَةَ During the time when the estate and the assets are being distributed. And who are those people? Ulul Qurba, they may be relatives, but non-designated heirs who are actually not receiving a share, but nonetheless relatives. Malyatama, orphans. Mamasakinu, generally poor and needy people. So Allah Ta'ala is saying to the people who are designated heirs, who do get a naseeb, farzukuhum minhu, that give them something, give them some sustenance, give them some charity from that naseeb. وَقُولُ لَهُمْ قَوْلًا مَعْرُوفًا And speak to them in kind and considerate words. And say, نَيْكِ دَفْرِ وَجَعَوْ آپ تو وارس نہیں ہو آپ تو سیکنڈ کزن ہو کیوں آگئے ہو آپ کو مونے دیکھنے چاہتے ہیں Right? Not like that. <laughs> Not like that. Not like that. وَقُولُ لَهُمْ قَوْلًا مَعْرُوفًا That you should speak to them in kind and considerate words. So this is interesting. Now this isn't required. The farzuku, this isn't farther wajib. Allah Ta'ala is indicating a commendable act. Of course, it is permissible. Let's say if the estate is small and the heirs are generally needy themselves, they could turn all these categories away. Interesting thing, it's also a lesson to take from this, that sometimes when a person is all of a sudden, when you are given some financial surplus, all of a sudden when there's an income flow, be that through inheritance or otherwise, 
and there are some needy and orphans who show up at that moment or later on, you should remember them and give them a share in that which Allah Ta'ala has shared with you. Now there is one acceptable way and one unacceptable way that this takes place in your orf. And I've gone through both experiences. Number one is if you buy a car, when you leave that showroom, the person who, the person who is going to enable you to leave the showroom and the very first patrol pump you pitch up at, they're going to expect some, they're going to expect you to share <laughs> from that bounty which Allah Ta'ala has given you. That situation is actually permissible in my view for them to ask. Because there is no, they're not taking advantage of you in an awkward situation. I mean, it's not like they're refusing to fill the patrol, right? And if you are, want to show this as shukr to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and remember this ayah, and if you feel that person is a miskeen, right, then you may give them something. One incident which I've also had to go through, which I do feel is unacceptable actually, to the extent that I think it should be outlined by hospitals, is that when you go to a hospital and have a baby, now this is a sensitive moment, this is a delicate moment, a woman is not always in her full panda as well, and everyone is over you. And I had this, and I say it by name, Hamid Latif Hospital, and I told the office that they should actually outlaw this, and they should issue written things, and they should make a fund then. They should tell us, they should leave, like, you know, sometimes in some restaurants there's a big jar, and you just put all the tips there. But for every single cleaning woman, every single extremely junior nurse, every guy who opened the door to be all over you at this precious moment, for money, this didn't seem to me to be an appropriate thing to do and a befitting thing to do. And these are not miskeen and orphans. These are employees, right? Each and every one of them was an employee of that hospital. So it does not befit uh, in such a moment. But here, this is my own feeling. Others may feel that the hospital one is more befitting and the car one is not befitting. Some may feel neither is befitting. Some may feel neither is fitting. Right? But overall, you get the feeling. But again, remember here, it was that relatives, orphans, and needy come. Right? Relatives, orphans, and needy. Although certainly some of the junior employees, both at the hospital and the patrol pump, are needy. What I would rather than see is the zakat fund set up at the hospital. And those who, in the happiness of their childbirth, would like to give some zakat or sadaqah fund. And distribute that amongst those employees who are of a junior pay scale who are either so poor, eligible of zakat, or still junior enough that you would feel they're eligible to receive sadaqah, that would be a more easier way to do that. Right? More easier way to do that. Alright. Okay. Here Allah SWT is saying is let those who fear, actually it's really that you should fear Allah SWT, but those who fear that were they to leave behind them young children, they often literally means weak children, weak offspring, young children, khafu alayhim, and they fear for them, right? And they fear for them. What does this mean? This is saying that they should fear Allah subhanahu and distribute the inheritance swiftly. People should fear Allah and distribute the inheritance swiftly because sometimes there may be people who genuinely need and are dependent on that inheritance. That's the lesson that the Mufatshin have taken from this. So that's why Allah says, فَلْيَتَّقُوا They should actually fear Allah subhanahu wa and distribute that inheritance swiftly. وَلْيَقُولُوا And it fits them that they should speak قَوْلًا sadida, That they should speak in a it's very close to Maruf, but Sadidan can be seen they should speak straightforward, honest, justly. Maruf means kind, considered fair, that's included here, but Sadidan also means straightforward, mm, honest. They should be completely honest, and whatever the taksim is, they should just do it in an honest, straightforward, swift manner, and tell everyone that we're just going to gather 
and no, you know, I always forget who ha shrapa about it. Just in an honest, simple, straightforward manner, distribute that inheritance without any delay. There's no need for any pomp or display in that. And those who do consume and partake unlawfully and unjustly misappropriate the assets of orphans, dhulman, it's an injustice that they do and they consume it, those who consume it unjustly, indeed the only thing that they are doing is ingesting the fire of Jahannam into their bellies. That's all they're doing. Here comes another word for Jahannam. Now, new one, Sa'ira, Sayaslona, and very soon they shall enter Sa'ira, a blaze. They shall enter the blazing fire, Sa'ira. All right. Now, Laspanta is going to mention another thing. Here is from Ayah 11 onwards going to start the Akam of inheritance. Yusikum Allahu fi auladikum. That Allah Spantala gives you basiya means Allah Taala directs you, instructs you. Enjoins upon you, fi auladikum, concerning your children. لِذَّكَرِي مِثْلُ حَذِّ الْأُنْثَيَينَ That the male child should, uh, the male child shall have a portion equivalent to two female childs. So the male child will be given a portion and share of inheritance equivalent to that of two female childs. Means the son gets twice as much as the daughter. Many of you would have heard our talk on gender equality and inheritance. I cannot repeat the entire thing here. But very quickly I will tell you that if you watch the transition, you're going to see that sons get twice as much as daughters. Brother and sister get the same amount. Mother and father sometimes get the same amount. And sometimes mother gets twice as much as the father. So you have cases in Islamic Quranic inheritance law where the male gets double the female, where the male and female get equal amount, and where the female gets double the male. So there's no gender bias here. There are different situations. Very broadly speaking, that Allah SWT is looking broadly at two things. Number one, the Islamic philosophy of money. The Islamic philosophy of money is that a man's money is entire, a woman's money is entirely her own. Nobody has any demands on it. Not her husband, not her parents, unless the parents have no son who can support them. Not their children, unless the children don't have a father who can support them. A woman's money is entirely honed, free to spend in any permissible way she wants, but even if that permissible way may be frivolous. <laughs> Not ideal, but it's allowed. A man's money is in no way, shape, and form viewed as entirely his own because his spouse has absolute far of the rights over his money. His children have rights over his money. His parents have rights over his money. Okay? So there's a difference. Second thing Allah Ta'ala is looking at age. So when the inheritance is being, being given to people who are of a younger age, then the difference in gender, for example, son and daughter are younger in age, right? So because of that, Allah Ta'ala feels, well, the daughter is going to still, when she, as she grows up as a woman, is going to receive many incomes. She's going to receive a meher. Then she's going to receive spousal support from her husband. Whereas the son is going to grow up, he's going to have to give a meher. He's going to have to give spousal support to his wife. He's going to have to give child support to his children. So when it's a younger age, Allah Ta'ala gives the man more. When the age is of median level, like brother and sister of the deceased, right? Then there is no need to prefer one either way. They will get equal shares, male and women. There's no gender disparity there. And when the age is even more senior, so the deceased leaves behind a mother and father, in that case Allah Ta'ala again sees no need initially to favor one, so they get the same amount. Or if the deceased 
didn't even leave behind grandchildren, didn't leave behind children. So the mother and father of the deceased don't have any grandchildren who can support them. Then Allah Ta'ala gives the mother of the deceased double than the father of the deceased. So that the mother can be well taken care of because now she's lost her child and she has no grandchildren. So if she reaches old age without her husband, right, who is going to support her? In that case, the mother woman gets double. So looking at age and philosophy of money, okay? At a younger age, men get double the women. Roughly equivalent age, men get the same as the women. And at an older age, and if there's a danger of financial support, the woman gets double that of a man. All of this is coming in Qur'an al-Karim. All right. If there are only daughters from amongst the children, and there are more than two daughters, then collectively all those daughters, which are three or more, will share in two-thirds of what the deceased leaves behind. The other one-third may go to his brothers or nephews or other, other things, right? But if amongst the children there are only daughters, and there are more than two daughters, then those daughters will receive, collectively share in two-thirds of the total estate of what the deceased leaves behind. And if there is only one daughter and no son, then that one daughter will be given half of the total estate that the deceased leaves behind. Either way, whether it's father or mother, it doesn't matter. Either parent, either parent, what they leave behind, if there's only one daughter, she will get half, right? Okay. Now what do the parents of the deceased get? So the two parents of the deceased, each one of the two gets a sudus, which means one-sixth. I told you the father might get the same, what of what the deceased leaves behind. If the deceased also left behind a child, either way, male or female child, either the parent, daughter or son. However, if, the, if there was no child, for the deceased, i.e. he did not leave, he or she did not leave behind either a daughter or son, then, and, and, and that means that his only inheritors are his two parents, then the mother will get one-third and the father will still get the one-sixth. So one-third is double of one-sixth. So this is the Quranic case where the woman gets double that of his man. And if the deceased has siblings... In that case, if the deceased has siblings, then the woman will again, the mother will still get just, will get one-sixth like the father. Because the notion is that his siblings can take care of the mother. Either his grandkid could have taken care of the mother, either his kid could have taken care of his mother, or his siblings could take care of the mother. If any of those cases are there, then the mother will get the same as the father one-sixth. But if he neither had a child nor has siblings who can take care of his mother, then the mother gets one-third and the father gets one-sixth, the mother gets double. All right. All of this min means all of this distribution and allotment of shares will take place after, after distributing any bequest that the deceased may have left or paying off any debts and liabilities that he may have left behind. So the 13, the sequence inheritance law is actually number one from the total assets and estate that is left behind. If there are any debts and liabilities outstanding on the deceased, they will be paid first to those debt, to those people who are owed those debts and liabilities from his estate. Number two, it will be seen that he leave behind a wasiyah. So wasiyah means a bequest. In Deen of Islam, it is allowed to leave, leave a will that, that apportions out up to one-third, not more than one-third, but up to one-third of your estate. And you can only give that one-third to non-designated heirs. Those heirs whose nasib, whose share has been already fixed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you cannot increase them in share. 
So you cannot say leave one third to this son or one third to this daughter or one third. No. Whomsoever shares have been stipulated by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there is no might, even the person before they pass away does not have the authority to give them more or less. The only thing they can do is anybody who has not been apportioned to share by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they, want to, they can leave their friend. They can say, I leave behind one third for my friend, X. They can judge, because X was not actually going to get a share. Anybody who is not entitled to a share under Islamic laws of inheritance, or any institute, foundation, charity, right? You can leave up to one third. So first thing that will be subtracted from the total assets in the state of the deceased is any debt or liability outstanding on them. Second thing that will be subtracted will be up to one, their wasiyah, which is valid up to one third. And then the remaining of the assets in the state will be distributed according to the Islamic laws of inheritance to each their apportioned share as decreed by Quran. Aba'akum abna'akum. Okay, now abna'a Allah Ta'ala is mentioning the philosophy that your parents and your children, literally it's fathers and sons, but your parents and your children, you do not know which one of them will be of more benefit or welfare to you, whether in this world or the next. And Allah Ta'ala is saying that you cannot, Allah Ta'ala has taken the decision into His own hands, because if you were in your hands, you would have used your akal or your tabiyah to see who you thought was better. And you would have said, okay, I leave so much to this son and less to the other son and less to this daughter and more to the other daughter. So Allah Ta'ala says, no, because you have no idea. You would have tried to do this on the basis of who you think is more true to you, who will benefit you more in this world, who benefited you more in this world, or who will benefit you more in the akhirah. You don't know any of that, so you will not distribute to that at all. A second, mean, second meaning it means that there will not be any, any benefit the heir gives to the testator, so that's why the shares will be based on kinship and kinship alone. Fariyatam min Allah that this is an absolutely mandatory, prescribed, apportioned amount of shares, and min Allah, and this has been done, min janib Allah, this has come to you from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Inna Allah kana aliman hakima. Know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all-knowing, and Allah ta'ala is all-wise. This means that those people who suggest that no, uh, this is outdated, and we should give daughters as much of the sons, no, you cannot change the law of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. No human, no lawyer, no parliament, no legislation, no judge, no court, no president, no edict, no ruler can change the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and none can claim to know better than him in regards to inheritance. In the kana aliman hakima. Indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all-knowing and all-wise. No matter how much your razamandi is in it, you cannot change the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the daughter will get half that of a son, irrespective of what you want. The only thing you can do, is in your own lifetime, you can give whatever you want to your daughter. You can transfer property and possession of all of your assets to whomsoever you want. But this is considered that if you do it to deprive, deliberately deprive another heir, of their lawful share, this is considered to be highly reprehensible and an act of sin that will be accounted for in the akhirah. For example, if a father has two sons, right? So what you can't do is in Pakistan, I want to make one son ak, right? I want to disinherit them. You can't do that. If he comes up with a hila, that okay, I will transfer right now all the business and factory and lands and deeds and car titles to son A, and son B will get nothing. If that's his niyat, to deprive, which certainly it is. It doesn't have to be niyat in the tongue. 
niyat is in the heart, if he's doing it precisely so that the other son does not get half a share in what the other brother does, then this is considered a sin. But the court, Islamic court, in this life won't do anything because when you make a transference of property when you're alive, that's legally valid. If you transfer all those titles and deeds to one son, that is legally valid in Islamic law, and that one son will be the malik of that. But if that was your niyat, you would be accountable to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the day of judgment. Alright? Okay. Similarly, similarly by the way, if you say that, okay, what I'll do is that I've got two houses, and I've got three houses. Oh, I don't know how to come up with a mathematical example that would make this work. I've got six houses. I've got six houses. You guys are smiling. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you wish. May Allah Ta'ala give us six jannats in this jannat. Six billion trillion jannat. That's what you could get. You know that? Every single one of you has the ability to get six trillion jannat. If you live a life of taqwa. Hmm? Let's say a person has six houses. And he has one son and one daughter. Okay, now he says, I know according to Islam that my son would get four and my daughter would get two. Let's say six equal, equally, equally value houses, right? But I'm a you know, liberal, enlightened, secular, progressive kind of guy. And so is my son, so he has no problem with it either. So I think that my son should get three and my daughter should get three and he has no problem either. Can't do it for you. So it's okay then, in order to bypass Islamic law of inheritance, I go ahead and give these, whatever X number to my daughter now. That will be legally valid in Islamic court, but you will be sinful. There is one way you can do it, which would be completely legally valid, and you would not be sinful at all. And that is that let Islamic inheritance law take into effect, let the son get those four and the daughter get those two, then if the son of his own accord and happiness gives one of his four to his sister, that's completely fine in Islam without any sin whatsoever. Without even the slightest karahat whatsoever. So no problem. It's your son's right. And if you're so convinced that your son would really do it, then let him do it. Let him do it because that's what Islam allows him to do. And Islam is fine with that. But then if I tell the person that says, well, no, I'm not sure my son would really do it then you cannot deprive your son of that right whether to do it or not because that right whether to give that house to his sister or not has been given to him by Allah subhanahu So there is a way around. If you are genuinely of that ideology and philosophy that you feel, so Islam has no problem with that, but the son has to do that himself. There's no problem. No problem at all. Alright? So there is a way where that end result could be obtained. So there are negative ways and there are completely acceptable and permissible ways in which that can be done. Alright? But to suggest in any way, even through the slightest of suggestion or insinuation, that somehow Islam, Deen of Islam, Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's laws are inferior to what we take as our new idol as secular, liberal, progressive laws, that is to cast an aspersion on Deen, on Quran, on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that reeks and smacks of kufr. And that is too close to kufr. We should be scared of doing that. And Allah Ta'ala to put the emotion in us to prevent us from feeling that. That's why He said, إِنَّ اللَّهَ kana aliman hakima." And a person should feel that my Allah in His Qur'an 
He is all-knowing and is all-wise. And his knowledge and wisdom transgresses anything else any person's mind can come up with. Alright? Very important also to understand. Okay, next Allah SWT is going to mention about spouses. So to you men, i.e. husbands, you will have half of what your spouses, i.e. wives, leave behind. If, if your wives did not have any children. And if your wives had children, then you will have one quarter of what your wives leave behind after any wasiyat, any bequest that they made has been distributed and after any debts and liabilities outstanding are paid off. Well, the hunna and for the women, for the wives, for them, for the women, i.e. for the wives, is one quarter of what their husbands leave behind if their husbands did not have any children. And if their husbands had children, then to their wives will be one-eighth from that which the husband left behind after the wasiyah and bequest has been distributed and after all debts and liabilities have been paid off. So here you saw a fourth relationship that the husband, uh, when his wife dies, gets one quarter, one half or one quarter, and the wife, when her husband dies, gets either one quarter or one eighth. So you have now in this sense, in the spouse thing also, right? So there was, in the brother, brotherhood one is coming in the spouse thing, the husband gets more than the wife in the event that uh, they're widowed or whatever the other word is, um, the wife is a widow and the husband is a, whatever it is called, I can't remember the English word for it now, right? Okay. What is the reason for this difference? What is the reason? So the reason why the amount is halved or not, depending on children, that I'll explain to you, right? That if they are children and they're not children, that makes the difference. That if they're... Uh, now this is the opposite reason. That if... Uh, let's do this again. Right, if there are no children, both... Both cases, the husband whose wife has passed away or the wife whose husband gets double because there's no children to share it with. But if there are children, then they get half, then they would have gotten half the amount they would have gotten if there were no children, right? That is understood because if there are children, then that person is not just a husband, but he's also a father. Then that woman is not just a wife, but she was also a mother. And therefore, then now the inheritance needs to be shared with the children as well, not just the spouse. But if there's no children and only the spouse are inheriting from one another, then they will get double the amount than they would have inherited if there had been children that had to share the inheritance of the children. Second thing is that, but in each case, right, and if you're looking at this in the map, the husband gets more than the wife. What is the reason for this? All right. Reason for this is that, and this is understandable, that most cases, most of what the wife has is what the husband gave to her in the first place. Right? Most of what the wife has, in many cases, is what the husband gave to her in the first place, right? So that's why when she passes away, because it was something that he gave to her because she was his wife, and she can, he can never ever take it back from her in his life or in the event of divorce either. That's also coming. He can never ever take anything back from his wife in her life or in the event of divorce. But when she passes away, right, he may need that back because maybe he needs to marry, he may want to marry. I mean, legitimately, when his wife dies, he may need to marry another woman. He may need now, and the other woman may say, Right? Right? He may be in a situation, right, that you gave your first wife so much meher. Okay? Whereas in the woman's case, if she wants to remarry, 
She wants to remarry. So her husband has passed away. She gets a little bit less of what he has because when she gets remarried, she will again get another income flow. She will get, again get a new marriage. And you will see it's coming a bit later on in Quran and many ahadith, Deen of Islam teaches that uh, it's a great sawab to marry a widow. Right? It's a great sawab for a man to marry a widow. So the understanding is, is that the widow would get married. Unless she's of a very old age or some other reason, or maybe emotionally she feels no need to get married, right? Spiritually she feels no need to get married and in many ways. But otherwise the deen of Islam has put in this system, contrary to other societal taboos, that a woman who is widowed should be getting married. All right. Here, I told you I actually ended up teaching you pretty much all the inheritance laws, right? I told you I wouldn't. Okay. Okay, this is an interesting thing. This is a very famous issue. This I'm not going to tell you, but much has been written on this. People in America have written PhDs and books on this issue. And one, Allah, I won't take his name, but Ajib, non-Muslim Jewish professor, Ajib, what he's written on this issue. So if there is a man, Alright, means also she also, okay, kalala means that they leave behind no one from ascendants or descendants. Means there's a deceased, leaves no parents, no children, no pota either, right? No dada either. Leaves behind no ascendants and no descendants. Okay, no predecessors and no descendants. In other words, what does it mean leaves behind? Okay, so that's called kalala. If either a man or woman dies in such a state, kalalatan, that they leave behind no inheritors from any predecessors or descendants, wallahu, however, that deceased, either way, whether it's a man or woman, has akhun o ukhtun. So although I made it clear, it leaves behind a sibling, either a brother or a sister, wallikulli wahidim minhuma sudus, that for each one of those two brother and sister will be one sixth. So here, brother and sister share equally, equal. So it's not a gender thing. Sometimes female is the same as male. Sometimes female is double than male. Sometimes female is half of male. It's another reason. It's a hikmat. It's a hakim, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it's hikmah making these shares. So each in one, the brother and sister will share in one-sixth. فَإِنْ كَانُوا أَكْثَرَ مِنْ ذَلِكَ If there are more than two of them. There are more than two, right? For whom, and then all of them, شُرَكَاءَ فِي الثُلُثِ they will all share equally in one-third, whether brother or sister, irrespective. All the siblings, whether brother or sister, male and female, they will equally share in, collectively in one-third. Means if there are six of them, they would each get one-eighteenth. Right? If there were six of them, they'd each get one-eighteenth, irrespective of whether they're brother or sister. Min the same thing, after any wasiyah, that is any bequest that the deceased has made is distributed out, awdain or any loan or any debt or outstanding liability has been paid off. Ghayra mudar. Now Allah Ta'ala mentions all, after all these ahkam, number one, Allah Ta'ala says, Ghayra mudarin. Know that none of these laws at all contain any harm. None of them have any harmful bias in them. So I was making it clear in case anybody's unsure. If Allah Ta'ala says point blank that there is no harmful bias in something, then it's not for any philosopher, any self-styled human rights lawyer, activist to suggest that the Islamic inheritance laws have bias in them or harm in them. And what are these laws? Again, wasiyatam minallah. 
that know that there are instructions and injunctions from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Wallahu alimun halim, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all-knowing and all-forbearing. Tilka hududullah, let us say even more, know that these are the limits delineated by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the dictates of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the ordinances of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَمَنْ يُتَئِ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ And that person who follows Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in all of these core laws of inheritance. وَرَسُولَهُ And also follows all the details in hadith about the extra special unique cases in inheritance law. That person who obeys Allah ta'ala and the Prophet يُلْخِلْهُ Allah ta'ala will admit them, will make them enter jannat and tajim and tahtiyal anharu that they will enter into Jannah, gardens under which rivers flow, خَالَدِينَ فِيهَانَ they will dwell therein forever. وَذَلِكَ الْفَوْزُ الْأَذِيمُ I told you it was coming, right? الْفَوْزُ الْأَذِيمُ فَوْزُ means the attainment, the success, the felicity, the achievement, the height, أَذِيمُ the greatest attainment and felicity and success that a person could ever obtain. وَمَنْ يَعْسِ اللَّهَ and that person who disobeys Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala generally, these ayat are general but First, first, disobeys in the laws of inheritance, وَرَسُولُهُ Or disobeys the hadith laws of inheritance. hududahu And transgresses the boundaries that Allah Ta'ala has delineated. يُدْخِلْهُ Allah Ta'ala will make that person enter, will admit them into Nara, into the fire of Jahannam. خَالِدًا fiha, They will remain therein. And this is not just, however, for inheritance laws. It means in any of the ahkam of sharia, any of the hududullah, any of the injunctions and commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and any of the injunctions and commandments of Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and such a person would have a humiliating punishment. Okay, now here comes another ruling. This is going to have to do with infidelity. Infidelity amongst married, uh, a married woman. Now you should know, this This is going to come when we do the tafsir of Surah Nur. I'll just tell you briefly now, and I will establish it to you in detail when we do that, that the punishment in Islam, this, for a man or a woman who are married, who are husband and wife, for them to engage in adultery, outright adultery, or the precursors to adultery, infidelity, isn't viewed by Allah subhanahu to be a terrible, grave sin. All right? So extramarital adultery or extramarital infidelity is viewed by Allah subhanahu wa to be a terrible and grave sin. So al-fahisha, al-iflam is ahdi here for those of you who study now. So the murad here of that fahish just generally means a lewd, an immodest act, right? But here a specific type of fahisha is being intended here, either the ultimate act of adultery or an infidelity that is leading to or tantamount to adultery. Either way. Right? They're different ways and you could even understood both of them to be understood. But I will tell you, there are some things coming that are specifically for that actual ultimate act of adultery itself. Okay? To consummate relations with a man or a woman who was not your husband and wife when you were married. Okay? Min nisa'ikum. So first thing happens that, okay, first Allah is addressing the husbands. That if you fear, sorry, ya'tina, there's no fear. If the, if from your wives, those of your wives who actually perpetuate, perpetrate, sorry, perpetrate, we have the word in the perpetrator, when they actually perpetrate adultery, then what should you do? Fastashhidu, you must call for evidence, alayhinna, against them, arba'atum, arba'atam minkum, four men from among you. 
فَإِن شَهِدُوا And if four such men do testify to that act of act of infidelity, فَأَمْسِكُوهُنَّ فِي الْبُيُوتِ Then you should confine them to their to the homes حَتَّى يَتَوَفَّاهُنَّ الْمَوْتِ Until death overcomes them. أَوْ يَجْعَلَ اللَّهُ لَهُنَّ سَبِيلًا Or Allah subhanahu prescribes for them some way. Alright, so first thing that's being mentioned here is that you need to have four male witnesses. Now I'm going to discuss this issue. I mean, I may have to... Okay. First thing, understand why should there be four witnesses? Number four, and then the gender. First the number, then the gender. The number is there, whereas there is no other part of Islam. There is no other legal process or legal ruling in Islam that the evidentiary requirement is the number four other than these cases of infidelity, adultery, fornication, extramarital, premarital, etc. Number one reason why is that because the punishment for these, as you're going to see partly today and later in Surah Nur, is extremely severe. And one of the features of Islamic laws, Al-Hududu Tandariyu Bishubhat, that such severe punishments as dictated and mandated by Allah SWT will be dropped at the slightest of doubt. In other words, it's not beyond reasonable doubt. The level of evidence you need, like for an American criminal, they say, to convict you need evidence beyond reasonable doubt. Quran that works for other things. But as far as these particular punishments pertaining to fornication, adultery, etc., the level of evidence you need is not just beyond reasonable doubt, it has to be beyond any and all doubt whatsoever. It's a higher evidentiary requirement. So the deen of Islam feels that that is established by four just Muslim upright witnesses. Second, men. So another reason why the Mufassirin have said, or rather the Fuqaha and Usulin have mentioned here, that four men is that because this is an almost impossible thing to attain. We ourselves say it. This is not something that some critic of Islamic law has come up with. In the books of Islamic law, it itself is mentioned that this is a near impossible evidence requirement. Because it means that because this was a crime pertaining to haya, Allah Ta'ala has made a way, and it's coming very soon, right on this page, that Allah Ta'ala has made a way of tawbah as well. And if a person makes true tawbah in their heart, number one, that may lead them to confess themselves to this crime. And if they confess, they must confess four times, by the way. In terms of the procedural aspect of Islamic law, they will be asked to confess, i.e. testify against themselves four times. So the number four is meant, right? And if they don't do that to get this punishment in this world, perhaps there may be a notion, and that's coming in the Quran, it's a bit not 100% clear, but perhaps their tawbah may be accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala anyway. All right. I should also make clear that in cases of rape, in cases of rape, contrary to all the propaganda that both the West and Pakistani TV and these popular speakers on TV said, neither Islam, nor Quran, nor even Pakistani law, nor even Pakistani hudud ordinances anywhere suggested that you need four male witnesses to prove a rape. All it said was that if you want to stone to death the rapist, 
you will need four male witnesses. If you have even one woman witness or DNA evidence or any other evidentiary process which you feel does establish, because that can be difficult sometimes to prove whether a rape took place or not, but any other process through which you establish that a rape took place, according to Islam, you can prosecute and punish that criminal with any punishment you want, but not stoning to death. That's all Islam says. So you're going to put the rapist in for jail for 40 years, you don't need the four witnesses. And even the Hudud, 1979 Hudud ordinances said that also. And the Pakistan Criminal Procedure Code says that also. So there were just lies that were fabricated on the street. And their actual judgment in cases, and I've given two or three talks on this in different cities, uh, in fact, one each in each city so far, the major cities of this country, showing cases from the Federal Shia Court where these things were clearly mentioned. Clearly mentioned. All right? Okay, but here we're not talking about the issue of rape here in any case. All right. Second thing, so what is the punishment for that? So the punishment here is not being mentioned stoning to death, right? The punishment here has been mentioned as house arrest until death overcomes them. House arrest. All right. Then you have this word, oh, yaj'alallahu lahunna sabil, or Allah Ta'ala prescribes another way from them. Some commentators have said this is the ishara to what we're going to do in Surah Nur, that later on Allah Ta'ala would prescribe a more intense punishment for this, which is stoning to death. Others have taken it in the other way, that maybe Allah Ta'ala will prescribe a way of forgiveness for them. Right? Okay. Second, and we're going to come back to this. This, is, this theme is going to keep coming back. Okay, and the two people who commit infidelity from you, you should punish them both. So now this suggests, right, this has been taken to understood many, many things. Number one, it's taken to mean that, okay, well, that woman who committed that infidelity, certainly there was a man who did infidelity with her. Whether or not he knew she was someone else's wife, he certainly knew that she wasn't his wife, right? That much is there, right? Whether or not he knew she was somebody else's wife, he certainly knew that she was not his wife. So that, that then, and all these tafsirs by the, are simultaneous. The point is that multiple meanings and multiple laws are emerging from one ayah. I'm not saying you have to pick one. They're all coming from this, alright? So that means, and that is an ashar to extra, or premarital. Like the other guy may have been unmarried, right? He should also be punished. It's not just for people who are married. Even unmarried people who engage in unlawful consummation, that's what it's actually talking about here, unlawful consummation, well, both of them should be punished. Second is that many scholars of Qur'an say that this applies to homosexuality or lesbianism. That this is the punishment, the ishad of punishment for sodomy or other such activity. So that the two of them show. Now there's a great detail in the books of fiqh, which I won't go into. But Sahabi Karam, actually the reason why, but maybe I should show you a little bit. What is the punishment for this act? For either male or female homosexuality. So there's no clear punishment mentioned in Quran for it. It's just mentioned that punish them. فَآذُوهُمَا But the punishment is not stipulated as to what it should be. Right? And nor in hadith is it stipulated. But Sahabi Karam, this is what we call fatwa of Sahaba. They gave different rulings when this crime was discovered. One sahaba, and I didn't memorize those names, but they're very big sahaba ikram. One of them, they had to be fuqahav sahaba, right? Those sahaba. Not every sahaba was a jurist. Not every sahaba could issue legal verdicts. One sahaba's view is that such a person, the punishment for that, they should be burned alive. One sahaba's view was that they should be pushed off a cliff, right? 
different than of the jurists that uh, would be saying, Imam Wanifa, Imam Malik, Imam Ash-Shafi, Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal, Rehmullah Ta'ala, they came up with different rulings based on the fatawa different Samba. Imam Wanifa, Rehmullah, I can tell you that ruling is that the first time, the first incident, the person should be punished and then re-educated, right, and given the chance to make Tawbah. But if there are repeat occurrences, then one can consider capital punishment, but it's not required, it's at the consideration and discretion of the judge and the emir. And you have this notion in Islamic criminal law of what we call discretionary punishments, they are called ta'zirat. And this is distinct from the hudud, which are the specific punishments that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prescribed, for which there is no discretion whatsoever. Alright? Okay. But here now, look what Allah Ta'ala is saying. Now the next verse can apply to all such cases. So married men and married, whether adultery, extramarital, premarital, or same gender. فَإِن تَابَ But if the two of them make tawbah, وَأَصْلَحَ And thereafter they act righteously. Thereafter they act so they don't go back, right? Thereafter they act properly, within the bounds. فَأَعْرِذُوا أَنْهُمَا Then Allah Ta'ala says, then let them be. Allahu Akbar Kapina. This shows you the power of tawbah and deen of Islam. Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala is saying, if the person makes tawbah, and after that tawbah acts within the bounds of propriety, right? Then, فَأَعْرِذُوا All the sahaba and all the ummah is being told to let them be, to leave them alone. إِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ تَوَّابًا رَحِيمًا that indeed Allah Subhanahu is that being who relents and who is all merciful. So we should take this then for ourselves, that, you know, it, this, now, now I'm saying for ourselves we should understand this ayah to be teaching us not just what should take place if actual consummation occurs, but also what should take place if the mubadiyat, if the precursors to that takes place, which many young men and women may be guilty of, right? At some point in their past, so we should feel that if Tawbah is made, if the two of them make true Tawbah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, وَأَصْلَحَانَ Then never touch one another again. And never touch another person again. Then فَأَعْرِذُوا anha anhuma Allah Ta'ala says, leave the two of them to be. إِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ تَوَّابًا رَحِيمًا That indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all relenting, sending, accepting of Tawbah. Rahima is all merciful. Then Allah Ta'ala continues, إِنَّمَا التَّوْبَةُ عَلَى اللَّهِ And only in Tawbah is only and only lazim. Allah comes for the zoom, mandatory and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. لِلَّذِينَ يَعْمَدُونَ سُوءَ بِجَهَالَةٍ For those people who commit evil and sin بِجَهَالَةٍ Now jahalatin doesn't mean ignorance. Because if it means ignorance, that means those who committed sin deliberately, knowingly wouldn't be let off. Let me show you a moment. Let's translate initially as ignorantly. So let's say if you took that unknowingly, ignorantly. Okay, certainly anybody who did a sin without knowing that they were doing a sin or without knowing it was a sin, right? Then Allah Ta'ala's tawbah is mandatory on them. ثُمَّ يَتُوبُونَ مِنْ قَرِيبٍ And then that person after doing so, after they did that evil and sin out of ignorance, then ثُمَّ يَتُوبُونَ مِنْ قَرِيبٍ They quickly made tawbah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they're going to make tawbah quickly, they must know it's a sin, right? Although, unless you're going to suggest that they did the sin ignorantly, and somehow kareeb, they got the ilm that it was a sin. Alright? فَأُولَٰئِكَ يُتُوبُ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِمْ That these are the people to whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala turns in acceptance of tawbah, relents unto them. 
and Allah subhanahu is all knowing and all wise. I'm gonna come back and show you why some ignorant. But there is no toba to those people who commit and perpetrate sin and evil Hatta and continue to do so until motu until death comes in front of one of them until the moment they die near death. And at that moment when death is about to overcome them, قال, they say, Inni tubtu al-an, inni tubtu al-ana, I make tawbah now. Allah Ta'ala says, no you can't. That person who postpones tawbah until the very last moment, and then says when they see that they're about to die, I make tawbah now, tawbah is not for that person. And second, who is Tawbah not for, for and for those people who die in such a state that they're unbelievers. So who was Tawbah not for? Tawbah is not for only that person who dies as an unbeliever, and Tawbah was not for the sinning believer who keeps sinning until the moment they die. That means Tawbah is there for everyone else. And this is what all the Mufasreen write. And because Tawbah is there for everyone else, they write, it's not just me. They write that bihjahalatin doesn't mean ignorance. They say they act out of stupidity or foolishness. They do an act of jahiliyyah. They succumb to their desires. So that means then that that person who made a sin due to their desires, their nafs, but they made tawbah quickly, then Allah Ta'ala's tawbah is guaranteed mandatory upon them. If they made tawbah less quickly, but at least didn't wait all the way till the end, to the moment they died, even then Allah Ta'ala's tawbah can be for them. But now what is the conditions of tawbah? That they must make tawbah and aslah. They must also become people of righteousness afterwards. They must leave that sin afterwards. Going back to the kuffar and those to whom they don't get tawbah, ulaika atadna lahum adhaban alima. And those are the ones to whom we will send upon them uh, a Painful, a painful punishment. Okay. So these conditions of Thomas. So the first thing then we should all feel, that any one of us who may have ever done any such thing with anyone or once, that even if we had, didn't make, if we didn't make Tawbah yet Kareem, but at least we're not doing it staring at the death. Right now death is not staring you in the face, right? You can make Tawbah still. And if you make true Tawbah, which means that afterwards you'd never ever repeat that act again, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can accept our Tawbah. So condition of tawbah is number one, that you never do that act again. Number two, that you spend your entire life trying never to feel like doing that act again. You may not be successful in that second part, but that you spend your whole life trying never to feel like doing it again. But number one, you never ever do it again. So number one, you never ever do it again. And number two, you keep spending your life trying never to feel like doing it again. Right? And that we disassociate ourselves from those individuals or those philosophies or those gatherings in which that sin occurs. We stop going to those places of that sin, right? Or to the gatherings of that sin. Or the meeting places of that sin. Alright? So this is something that is incredible mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? And we should make dua that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us tawfiq to make that tawbah and to make that islah. To make that islah to become people who act rightly thereafter, ever thereafter, all the way until the moment we pass away. Alright, next ayah, ayah number 19. 
ഹിന്ദുക്കുമാക്ക് and they would marry her off to someone whatever dowry that person paid they would take it they wouldn't give it to the woman and they would take that as a price for her and they would distribute it amongst the heirs it can also sometimes mean that a single person would even give her away almost like as a slave she's a free woman but give her away as a slave viewing her to be a piece of property all right and it shows you what a level of jahiliya this is because who inherits the sons inherit So it means in some cases, in some cases this included sons treating their own mothers like this. This is real jahiliya. So the spontals are making it clear that this is a practice that is no longer is absolutely forbidden and absolutely haram. But the karhan means that you marry them against their will and you take money. Okay, wala ta'zuluhunna. لِتَذْهَبُوا بِبَعْضِ مَا أَتَيْتُمُوهُنَّ إِلَّا أَنْ يَأْتِينَ بِفَاهِشَةٍ مُبَيِّنَةٍ All right. Second thing is that uh, when you want to divorce a woman, you should not mean لَا تَعْذُلُهُنَّ Don't restrain them, don't hold them back. Right? So this is referring to divorce. So when you want to divorce a woman, don't hold them back and keep them and don't divorce them. Don't make their life so tough. that instead of you wanted to divorce them, but instead of you divorcing them, you make life so difficult for them that they ask khula from you. Now khula is a way that a woman can also exit her marriage and what it means is she requests the man to set her free. It's a surat of tafriq. It's another way to become separated legally, right? It's another way to end the nikah, but it's slightly different from talaq because it doesn't, it's not something that proceeds from the husband to the wife, it's something the wife requests from the husband. And it's also understood that she can request that on the basis of offering something monetary to him, which many times customarily and also within Islamic law is valid, means waiver of the meher. So she offers him a khula at the amount of meher. Some unjust people may even require more than that. So if the meher is 10 lakhs, I'll give you khula at 15. So 15 means that okay, when the separation takes place, I had to give you 10 if I hadn't given it yet, right? Right? because of the meher and on top of that I'll have uh, but you waive that to me and you have to give me five on top right so what Allah Ta'ala is saying is don't restrain the women that you intend to divorce and they know that because you probably start not treating them so nicely or not being kind to them right not sitting with them so then life becomes a living hell right and then in order for them to get out of that living hell then they feel under duress and they tell you okay set us free we'll waive the meher don't do that that you're wanting لِتَذْهَبُوا بِبَعْضِ مَا أَتَيْتُمُهُنْ that you want to take away some of that which you gave them. You can't do that. Illa, except, when can you do this? أَنْ يَأْتِينَ بِفَاهِشَةٍ مُبَيِّنَ Except when they openly, clearly, مُبَيِّنَ can mean openly, and مُبَيِّن can also mean, مُبَيِّنَ uh, means openly, and مُبَيِّنَ, I don't want to go into those kiraat, but it means do it openly, but it can also mean that it's also been established that she committed adultery. So if there's a woman who did adultery, right? You see, the act of adultery in and of itself doesn't make her divorced. But a man may legitimately not want to be 
remain married to a wife who did adultery. But if he divorces on top, he may have to. He feels that I have to give her whatever mare I haven't paid yet. So in that case, then you can actually prolong their staying in their house and sort of, you know, um, because in this case, obviously, the woman who did adultery has made her husband's life a living hell. And he may also then sort of sideline her and not treat her, not mistreat her, but not be kind to her such that she realizes that I should just ask for khula and end this situation. And that way the man may get out of paying the meher. Only in this case it is allowed. وَآشِرُهُنَّ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ But otherwise, other than these cases, then what you should do and what is the norm, what is the default is وَآشِرُهُنَّ You should live with your wives بِالْمَعْرُوفِ in what is considered to be fair, proper, due consideration and nobility. Alright? Here comes an ayah I was telling you about. فَإِنْ كَرَحْتِ كَرِحْتُمُهُنَّ And if you dislike them or something about them, فَأَسَى It may very well be أَن تَكْرَهُ شَيْئًا وَيَجْعَلَ اللَّهُ فِيهِ خَيْرًا كَثِيرًا That you may be disliking شَيْئًا And the thinmeen here is coming for taqlil That you may be, uh, it can be coming for tanqir or taqlil You may be disliking one particular thing in them Or just a few things in them However, while at the same time, يَجْعَلَ اللَّهُ فِيهِ And Allah Ta'ala has placed in them خَيْرًا كَثِيرًا Allah Ta'ala has placed a great good in it. فِي can also mean that Allah Ta'ala has placed in that particular thing that you dislike about them, actually great good. Right? For example, you may dislike that you feel your wife is too stern with your children, but Allah Ta'ala has actually placed a great good in that, that her sternness is what's going to bring about their tarbiyah. So that's one way to understand. Okay, in fact, that's the way, better way to probably more closely to the language understand this. But I told you that hadith, right? Uh, and that is hadith in Muslim, Sahih Muslim, that no believing man should dislike his believing wife. If Second, if there is a quality in her that he dislikes, he should find and discover and focus on those other qualities, other qualities of hers by means of which he may be pleased. So this is bef- during marriage and before marriage also. Hadith of Sayyidina Rasulullah And this is also for the mother-in-laws. Yes, mother-in-laws all over the world must understand this phenomenon. That if there is something in their daughter-in-law, one called, or even prospective mother-in-laws, even prospective mother-in-laws, they should also choose on the basis of taqwa. They should choose a spouse for their son on the basis of taqwa. They should choose a daughter-in-law on the basis of taqwa, dini adab, dini akhlaq, dini sifat. And if there's one particular thing that oh, she's slightly short or slightly different caste or slightly not as high-flying defense as we are, right? They should overlook that and they should instead take pleasure and comfort from the other wonderful features Allah Ta'ala has put in either their perspective or actual daughter-in-law. Yes, they owe me a lot of time, if nothing else. A lot of time of mine is taken counseling people on this issue. Not so much, but still. It's a, I feel it. I mean, because I, I hate, I, I mean, you know, it's such a... A sad thing, right? This mother-in-law, daughter-in-law thing. So I feel every second, right? I mean, you know, we see if you don't, if you don't like doing something, you should be paid. If I hope Allah Taala gives me a massive ajr per hour that I have to do with counseling people on this type of issue. But better for me that I could try to fix the mother-in-law somehow, 
And there's also sometimes daughter-in-laws, right? Because the mother-in-laws are probably thinking, oh, to see bahu kubi deko, right? That's how they're thinking. So yes, daughter-in-laws also need to know. But that's beyond. That's a whole marriage workshop. That's my wife's job, right? That's not vomir basmaniya, that I sit down and actually do that. It could be side prahutai, right? But this is what Allah Ta'ala, this is what Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is saying, right? And this is something, you know, I'm also a husband, we're all very weak in this. Well, we are the opposite. We focus in and home in on that one particular thing. And that's the way most husbands are. The wife can be doing 99 things for them. The one thing she didn't manage to do, they home in on that, like with the Zoom, with so much that they disregard everything else. And then she's left stunned, right? She is left stunned at what just happened. So Sayyidina Rasulullah was training men. that you know, if, And if there's something even legitimately, right? And this is what I was saying when we were talking about the polygamy as well that don't go jump quickly for the second wife, and it's an emotional reaction that people have. Don't jump for that just because of one issue, right? Look at the other things. At the same time, again, from the women, and this is actually something written in tafsir at this point, so I'll mention it here. Allah subhanahu but it's coming in an ayah later. Allah ta'ala mentions, oh, I can't remember now, لِتَسْكُنُوا إِلَيْهَا That one of the reasons for marriage is for the man's incentive in marriage. لِتَسْكُنُوا إِلَيْهَا So that he gets sukoon from his wife. So that is why every wife should make her ability to be a source of sukoon for her husband. Not always complaining about her husband to sheikh. Not always deriding her husband. Not always talking down her husband. Not always making the husband seem as if he's inadequate, inferior, insufficient for her needs. Not always complaining about the lack of earning of the husband. Not always complaining how much the other people make compared to her husband. Right? And one grave, grave sin I will also mention. One grave sin is that if a man and woman are married and if for some reason they're not able to have children. So if they can't have children due to the mother, to the woman, for the husband to be mean to his wife for that reason is a terrible sin in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because it was no fault of her own. This was the will and wish and decree of Allah. And similarly, if they can't have children due to some thing in the man, for the woman to be even in the slightest way, either for the man also in the slightest for the woman to be mean to the husband, or to say something to the husband, right, that you're less of a man, or you're an inadequate man, or something like that, that is a terrible and terrible grave sin to do. This is also the will and wish of the great, great ulama and awliya that I've known of, even living and even in the past, were unable to have children. And remember Allah, and you should never be doubt, you should never... You know, think that why did this happen to me and I had piety and I had... Allah Ta'ala has afflicted great ulama and awliya with this. Piety and taqwa and sunnah and ibadah does not preclude Allah testing us with every single type of test. For example, Shaykh Ashraf Ali Tanviri was not able to have children. And according to his biographical accounts, it was because of him. Right? So does that does it mean it's not, it's not an adami kubuliyat? That's what I'm trying to say. No man or woman, individually also, I'm just counseling, no man and woman should feel its lack of kabulit in the eyes of Allah subhanahu It's just a test that Allah subhanahu sends, right? And we should bear it with sabr. And certainly we should console the hearts of our partner and never do anything, anything, even an ishara, either way, to hurt the partner in that way. Oh, about the Hmm? Where were we? Okay, all right. So did we, okay, so this is the this is the I number nineteen. Okay, next I number twenty. 
Now when you intend to replace one wife with another, one wife in place of the other, right? what does it mean that okay, you've decided that it, you couldn't work it out? That's coming later, right? There's going to be a whole surah on divorce and how Allah wants you to work it out. But if you can't work it out and you decide to divorce this wife, and you think your plan is, and later I'll get married to another woman, right? Who for however reason you feel that she will be more suitable, and etc., etc. What you cannot do, what you cannot do is what? what you, okay, in such a state, that you had given the first one, kintarun, a fortune. You had actually given her a lot of money, whether that be in meher, that be in otherwise, you put cars in her name, homes in her name, lands in her name. فَلَا تَأْخُذُوا مِنْهُ شَيْئًا You cannot take from that even one drop. What you gave her is hers. It's finished. Just the fact that you want to divorce her and marry again doesn't mean you can take any of it back. Whatever you gave her, be it meher or gifts or anything is hers. And then Allah Ta'ala says, أَتَأْخُذُونَهُ بُحْتَانًا That you take it as a means of slander. What does it mean that if you saw the ayah earlier, Allah Ta'ala said that, okay, if she had committed an open fahisha, right? If she committed open adultery, then you could keep her in the home and make her do, you know, try to push her to a state of khullah so that she could wave her mehr, or you could even take the mehr back from her, right? But that was in the surah, that was in the case in which she had committed that an infidelity or adultery. So that means that you're implicitly suggesting if you try to do it with this wife, that she's guilty of that and that you can't do. Either way, you cannot take anything. وَإِثْمًا mubina, And if you do that, it will be an open sin. Open sin. Same word Allah use here, mubin for the word he used here, mubayina for fahisha. Okay? So that's a rapt. What does this mean also? Lesson from here is that the husband and wife must be crystal clear. Crystal clear as to what belongs to who. And this comes up most often in Pakistan in terms of jewelry. And it affects the issue, also offends the issue of zakah. Alright? Now, if there is not sarahat, if there's not tasriya, if it's not explicitly mentioned, which it should be, and it's part of the teaching of Islam, and if not explicitly mentioning it means that you become lax in following or observing the hukum of Allah, then failing to explicitly mention it will be a sin. Because that thing which is inevitably a subab to sin is itself a sin. Hey, for example, if you know that you cannot wake up for fajr without setting the alarm, not setting the alarm is a sin. That itself is a sin. Not setting the alarm is itself a sin if you know that you cannot wake up without the alarm. The act of not setting or the failure of setting the alarm is a sin. So similarly, the failure to stipulate between the husband and wife what is whose property, especially when it comes to jewelry. And if you fail to do it, the hukum will always be the one that is harsher on you. That will be the, what, the, what the mufti's fatwa will give, right? Or what we call the ma'roof. As we say, and there's, a, there's a principle in fiqh, al-ma'roof kal-mashur. What does that mean? Let me give an example. So a woman got married, and she received a lot of jewelry from all quarters, including Sas. Right? Okay. Now there's a divorce. Now what happened was that Sas convinced her that she, okay, you're living in... Okay, now this woman got married in the sense that many people in Pakistan do. They end up living with the in-laws, right? So let's say she just had a bedroom or maybe a small portion. So Sas said that I have a safe... And you should keep the jewelry with me. Alright. That jewelry was kept with her as an amana. If the divorce takes place, that sas must open up that safe and give all the jewelry to that woman. 
Because it's in her property, in her name. It may be in the possession of the mother-in-law, or it may have been put by the husband in a bank safe deposit back that box that is in his name. But her putting the jewelry in that box doesn't mean she was giving it to you. So it should be clear who has the actual ownership of any and every asset, irrespective of who may have possession of it as an amana. And if you didn't make that clear, the fatwa will be that any jewelry that was given to her was given to her, was not given jointly to the two of you. Do you feel that the Rolex that you were given was given jointly to the two of you? No, it's clear. That's, that's what I'm saying. Al-Maruf kal-Mashrut, whatever thing was given to the woman that is exclusively worn by women will be, to be, viewed, be viewed to be her exclusive property. And anything that was given to the man in the marriage that is exclusively of use to the man will be viewed to be his property. And the default that anything that is given, which is used by both of them, will be viewed to be 50-50 unless you stipulate otherwise. So somebody gave a washing machine, right, or furniture set to you. It also affects inheritance, right? So when the husband dies, what is what was his assets, right? Okay? So better that you make it clear in name and these things should be written out. Otherwise, I've given you the default positions for some of these things. Okay, so this is issue of divorce, issue of inheritance, issue of zakat, a lot of issues. There are lots of issues tied up with assets and property that you have and their division and paying zakat on them. Okay. Okay, then Allah, so Allah Ta'ala continued this topic in, in verse 21. And how can you, how dare you, how could you even think of taking that, anything? When, when some of you have been intimate with some of you. In other words, when you have actually, it literally, I forget what literally means, but you have actually been intimate with you one another. And they took from you, the women took from you, O men, mithaqan ghalida, a firm commitment. What is that firm commitment? Meher. Meher is a firm commitment that you must give it. Okay, now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to mention one other thing, that who is it that you can't marry? وَلَا تَنْكِهُ مَا نَكَهَا أَبَاؤُكُمْ مِنَ النِّسَاءِ إِلَّا مَا قَدْ سَلَفْ Okay, you cannot marry those women who your father or grandfather or forefathers married. Here, it, by marry, it also means consummate. So what it means is you cannot marry your father or grandfather's wives or if he had any illegitimate partners. So imagine it, right? If your father had relation, I mean, not your, let's just, if, if, if somebody's father had relations with a woman outside of marriage, it's not permissible for the son of that man to marry that woman ever. Okay? All right. Okay, whatever is past is past. Allah Ta'ala is addressing it to the original recipients at the time of the moment of the revelation of this verse, that whatever is past is past. إِنَّهُ كَانَ فَاهِشَةً Were you to do so, to marry a woman whom your father has entered either through marriage or otherwise, is extremely indecent and lewd. وَمَقْتَى This is another word, I think it came once before, not, it's abominable. It's an abomination. It's extremely indecent allude and an abomination. Wasa as-sabil and the most evil of customs. Because this was something also in pre-Islamic Arabia. They didn't look at this issue at all. There's no problem. They had no problem with that. All right. 
Now comes this famous ayah, long ayah, one of the most difficult ayat apparently for the Hufaz to recite in Taraweeh. So I'm not about to give it a shot myself, right? Unless you do it very slowly. But Hurrimat alaykum. Allah Ta'ala has made, made, prohibited have been made upon you in terms of marriage. And the converse is going to be, prohibited has been made upon you for marriage either way. It's also going to mention something about the ahkam of hijab and parda. Right? Because later when it comes, when we do it, then the women are told how they can dress and appear in front of one category, which is everybody who doesn't fit into this group. Mahram. Who is your mahram? Who is your mahram? This issue is coming up. It's going to issue, cover issues of nikah and marriage, issues of parda and gender interaction, and issues of suffer, issues of traveling, issues of hajj, certain other issues. All right. Number one, ummahatukum. So Allah is going to say it in terms of the men, but the converse will be true. They're just like for men, their mothers are haram on them. For women, their fathers are haram. You just switch, right? When it's going to say khala is haram, it means mamu is haram for the, for, the, for the girl, right? You can just do the converse in terms of gender. So prohibited have been made upon you, O men, your mothers, okay? Your daughters, all right? Your sisters, okay? Your father's sisters. Ammatukum means father's sisters, which you call pupus. Makhalatukum, your mother's sisters, right? Which you call khala. وَبَنَاتُلْ أَخْي And your brother's daughters. وَبَنَاتُلْ أُخْتِي And your sister's daughters. So nieces, I don't know, one is Banji and one is Batiji, I don't know what. وَأُمَّهَاتُكُمْ اللَّاتِي أَرْذَعْنُكُمْ And those mothers of yours who are mothers by means of that they wet-nursed you, they breastfed you. This I did earlier, this ayah came. Alright? What you call رَذَائِمَ رَذَائِمَ وَأَخَوَاتُكُمْ مِنَ الرَّذَاءَ And your sisters by means that you shared the same wet nursing mother. رَذَاءِ بَهْن Okay. Now, okay. why is this? Now let me just explain this a little bit because I explained this part earlier. So Allah Ta'ala, this is part of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala's mercy actually that He has put this feature in the deen of Islam. And this is a very useful feature especially when you live in joint family systems. Right? That's why this feature is there. So it shows you that there is a hurma between Right, uh, these joint families that can be alleviated. So, what does it mean? So, if you live, your three brothers live together, and they all have children, and they're all running around in one house. So, it may be a good idea, right, that if all of those three women, who are chachis and thais respectively, to all the children, if they want that the children never have to observe further with one another when they're 16, 17, 18, 20, they want to send all of them somewhere. Right, to travel together and study together and whatever. So it's better then that all those three chachis and ties make sure that they give of their milk and breastfeed all of the children born in that family. And then if you do that, then they're haram to marry. And that also means then there's no parda in front of them. Right? There's no parda in front of them. So this is what Allah SWT has made their feature of the deen. Another group, وَأُمَّهَاتُ nisaikum. And the mothers of your women. Again, it means the mothers of those women who you're lawfully married to, as well as the mothers of illicit partners. So if a man had an illicit outside of wedlock relationship with a woman, at the level of consummation, he could not marry that woman's mother now. And that woman's mother is also a mahram for him. Okay? So this means basically stepdaughters who are in your care who are born of women of yours. So if, in other words, that there is a woman, either wife or illicit partner, and she has any daughters, they're not your daughters, they're her daughters from some previous relationship, but once she becomes your woman, then her daughters are also haram for you to ever, ever marry. 
Ever, ever married. All of these are ever, ever. There's only one that's coming, which is two sisters together, which is temporary, right? But all these are ever, ever, forever. Okay, min al-nasa'allati So this is what I told you, dakhaltum bihinna, those whom you've consummated with. فَإِن لَمْ تَكُونُوا دَخَلْتُمْ بِهِنَّا And if you have not consummated with those women, whether they're your lawfully wedded wives or whether they're illicit partners, but you didn't consummate, then you could marry their daughters. Right? فَلَا جُنَحَا عَلَيْكُمْ There will be no blame on you were you to marry such women's daughters. وَحَلَائِلُ أَبْنَائِكُمُ الَّذِينَ مِنْ أَسْلَابِكُمْ and those women who are now halal on your sons, in other words, those women who your sons have, uh, either again through lawfully wedded wives or their illicit partners, but they are now their women of your sons, then, and those sons who are min aslabikum, those sons who were born from your loins, just means your biographical son, uh, biological sons, not stepson or foster son, your actual biological son, such women will also forever, not just when your son is married to them or when your sons have relationships with them, they'll always be haram for you. And that you combine two sisters simultaneously. This is the only one that is the same in time. If somebody is married to a woman and then that woman dies, later he could marry her sister. That's not forever. That is simultaneous in time. And this also applies to two women... Any two women of, uh, it, it, sorry, it also applies to an aunt and a niece. You cannot marry an aunt, a woman who, two women who have the aunt-niece relationship together simultaneously. You cannot marry a woman. It's, it's going to be hard to explain this to you, but you cannot marry any other two women who, if all of these relationships are man-woman, if you were to make them women-woman, you cannot marry any two women like that together. Here. You, so the, exa- the only one example that comes out of this is Antonis, because you couldn't marry a daughter and a m- mother ever, let alone simultaneously. All right. Illa ma except that whatever is past is past before. Inna laha kana rahima. Indeed, Allah subhanahu is all forgiving, all merciful. In terms of these ahkam, Allah ta'ala did not insist that Sahaba Ikram divorce their wives if they had married anyone in this. That's what it means. Whatever has passed is past. However, in terms of that earlier verse that you can only marry up to four, there were a couple of sahaba who actually, because it was also pre-Islamic practice that you could marry more than one wife, who had more than four wives when they accepted Islam. At that point, Sayyidina Rasulullah told them when they accepted Islam that they have to choose four and keep them, and they'll have to divorce the rest. So this is the wisdom of Allah Subhanahu that there are some rulings that were applied retroactively, such as the limit of four, when a person entered Islam, they'd have to divorce and some, all, all the number above four. But this ruling was not applied retroactively. And so if a person had happened to have been married, for example, two sisters, right? And then he became a sahaba, he wouldn't have to divorce one of them. All right? Okay. All right, so since we finished this fourth juz, then we'll take a break over here, inshallah. And then we'll come back. وَالْمُحْصَنَاتُ مِنَ النِّسَاءِ إِلَّا مَا مَلَكَتْ إِيمَانُكُمْ Alright, so we are now in the first ayah of the fifth juz, the fifth para. This is still Surah An-Nisa and this is ayah number 24 of Surah An-Nisa. Here this month is continuing and I'm only going to do just a few more ayahs with you about up till Surah verse number 28 and then we'll finish this discussion tonight a bit, today a bit early. And also forbidden to you in marriage of muhsanatu are those chaste women, men and nisa, who are married. 
chaste married women. This muhsanat word means both things can mean chaste and sometimes it means married. It's used for both things. Here some of the commentators say that it means both chaste and married because some people were of the view, by chaste rather it means that who had not consummated, it meant that those women who were married, but maybe they were so recently married that their marriage had not been consummated, sometimes people thought that they may be able to marry them without a whole process of divorce and all of that. But that is not permissible. Or if it just means married, then obviously that's understood. Then anybody who is married to somebody else, it's not permissible to marry them. All right, that's easy. Illa ma malakat eimanakum. What does it mean? Except those bondswomen who are in your custody. This meant that it was permissible to marry a bondswoman if she had previously been married. What does that mean? So again, so let's say, uh, you know, the kuffar of Makkumakarma waged an aggression and the Muslims fought a battle and they captured some people and there was a woman who was married to some unbeliever in Makkumakarma, right? So let's say it's her and the Sahaba want to get married. Make it clear, marriage cannot be done against a person's will. Marriage requires ijab and kabul and offer and acceptance. That means that that woman now wants to marry this Sahaba or marry this Muslim. It cannot happen in a dress. Right? So this bondswoman wants to marry and the Muslim wants to marry her. And she would, if she cannot be a mushrika at this point, she could be genuine ahli kitab, a man can marry, that's coming later. A man can marry genuine ahli kitab, and that's going to be a big discussion as to who is genuine, genuine, <laughs> genuine ahli kitab, Allah Akbar. That's really not the thing that the Pakistanis are doing in America, right? But a genuine ahli kitab or Muslim. But if there is a woman like that, who is a bondswoman, she was previously married under some other religion to some other person, now 100% of her own volition, she wants to marry the Muslim and the Muslim wants to marry her. So Allah made it clear, in that case you can marry because she's not considered as married. Her previous marriage is null and void. All right, you can marry her. Otherwise, you cannot marry married women. Okay. Kitab Allahi alaykum. And this is the prescribed commands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They've been made alaykum. Remember Allah for the zoom. Alaykum that are absolutely mandatory upon you. And permissible has been made unto you. That who were all the other women? All women other than the ones that have been mentioned in that uh, ayat, those ayat that came before. So for example, this includes first cousins. Now first cousin marriage is completely jais in Islam. But if a person feels that there's multiple first cousins, that the fathers were cousins, the parents and grandparents, and a medical doctor tells them that there's a greater chance of some type of consanguous or congenital genetic disease, then it would still be permissible in Sharia, but it would be something that the deen of Islam would want them to take into consideration along with other factors. And if for that reason they didn't marry, that's also completely permissible. It may even be somewhat preferable. But I wouldn't say prohibited, they could still marry even in that case. All right. However, now Allah Ta'ala is going to say, what is the reason you marry? That you seek by means of your wealth. It doesn't mean you marry by means of your money. It's going to come in a little bit, but you marry when you're able to marry. Because it's going to come in shortly, that what happens for that young man who's not able to marry? What can he do? And there's going to be hadith about that as well. So here saying on the basis of your ability now to marry, you should seek to marry what? مُحْسِنِينَ غَيْرِ مُسَافِهِينَ 
you should seek to marry in such a state that you, it's not referring to the women, to the husbands, the potential husband, that you are doing so to be chaste, to guard your chastity, to be pure and remain within modesty, not غير مصافحين, not marry out of lechery, lewdness and lust. So it also shows that that deen that says a man should not marry a woman out of lust, obviously that deen is not going to sanction then premarital relationships and girlfriends. Because those people marry on the basis of lust eventually. So Deen of Islam saying is no. Second thing it can mean that on the course of your marrying and those ooh, those preliminary stages leading up to that marriage, your consideration should be the considerations of a chaste person, which again is taqwa and, and adab and akhlaq. Your consideration shouldn't be that of a person who is seeking merely to fulfill some type of lustful desire. All right. فَمَسْتَمْتَعْتُمْ بِهِ Okay, those women whom you have literally, it means derived benefit or enjoyed, i.e. those women who after you married them, you consummated, then minhunna from فَعْتُهُنَّ uh, that you must give them, أُجُورَهُنَّ their amount, فَرِيدَةً that was mandated and prescribed, i.e. you must give them the meher. So this came earlier in Surah Bakara, I think, or maybe earlier in Surah, I came earlier at some point in the Quran, where we taught you that the meher for a woman with whom the marriage is consummated, she's entitled to the entirety, and for a woman who's not, the marriage has been consummated, she's entitled to half, but even then, if the husband gave all, it would have been better. One particular ideology has taken a weird uh, spin on this ayah, and they have their own particular practice known as muta, and they think that this ayah establishes their practice. This ayah is not establishing their practice. This ayah, and so what they say is the ujur hunna, ujur from ujrat, you should give them their wage. So they believe in what they call in English temporary marriage, which is really, you know, short-term prostitution. And they suggest that you can marry a woman for an hour, you can marry a woman for a night, you can marry a woman for a week, you can marry a woman for a month. And there have been Western studies who have gone into Iran and done interviews on them. And once I even saw on YouTube an interview of one of these women uh, on Iranian TV wearing a black al-parda, not necessarily parda dar, but to hide her identity. And Allahu Akbar, Allahu Alam, whether she was speaking truly, but the things she said just would be shocking. No self-respecting woman would do those type of things. No deen could ever suggest that a woman should do that. We're talking about so many numbers of relationships that she had in the name of Muta. And apparently it is viewed by them as a special honor to do Muta with some ayatullah or something like that. So this is completely, absolutely haram. And again, you can just think, Rasha, that that deen, why would you need to tell a man to lower a gaze when he can get a wife for one hour? There's no need to lower your gaze if you can do that, Right? All of this teaching on haya and chastity and modesty, even all of what I told you that don't, may not even be able to marry more than one, all of those teachings would come down to nothing. If you could just marry a woman for an hour. The whole philosophy, what philosophy of marriage is that? What type of marriage is that? Right? But they suggest that this ayah, just because the words are there. So remember, remember what Allah SWT said earlier in Quran, that there are ayat that are muhkam and ayat that are Right? And those ayat that were ambiguous, remember, yudhillu bihi kathira, that many people will be misled by them. So one meaning of that is there may be a word that could have another meaning if you spin that word, 
So the word, the letters are there, Mim Ta'ayn is there. So this is a way that they have fallen into error, or rather I would say they lead others into error by looking at this verse. So Allah Ta'ala maybe deliberately used this, these words so that the possibility of those who wanted to be misguided and misguided could also exist. Now Allah Ta'ala has created means of guidance and He's also created a means of misguidance in His Qur'an. And this is a perfect example of that, that the right guidance of this is that those with whom you enter into what you intended to be a till death do us part type of nikah, right, type of nikah, and that you had relations, intimate relations with them, that you should give them all of their meher. But Allah Ta'ala expressed that in such words that a particular group, if due to their evil and their lust and their sin and their disbelief, wanted to be misguided and misguide others, they could invoke this ayah to do so. Alright? So they translate, Ujur hunna farizatan, Ujur like ujrat, right? The wages and the money that you... Fariza agreed upon between you and them for that temporary marriage. SNA. Okay. Wala jana alaykum fi and there is no harm, blame on you, and that which you two genuinely mutually agree upon, mimba'dil fariza, after you have determined the amount of meher. What does that mean? That that means that number one, it could mean that the wife would be willing to decrease it, it could mean the husband is willing to increase it, it says also that they're willing to defer it, right? Whatever you mutually agree upon, that is permissible for you, even after you have stipulated it. So that means, right, that if in the nikah ceremony you stipulated 10 lakhs, and later on the husband and wife agree on 5 lakhs, in other words, she agrees to weigh 5 of her lakhs as meher, you should again get witnesses to that, but they have the right to do that between the two of them. All right. In Allah Khan Hakima, but indeed Allah Subhanahu is all knowing and all wise. He knows each and everything that you do, and He was in all of His wisdom did He lay out His injunctions for you. Now, man wa man lam minkum. I told you that that person who does not have the ability tolan ayni yan kehal mohsanat, that that person who doesn't have the ability, the means tolan means the means of the earning, literally tool, does not have the capacity, right? That person who does not have the ability and the lengthy means or the wide enough capacity that they can marry, means financial, they can marry a chaste believing woman. Musanatin mu'minat, from the, from the chaste believing women, then what they can marry from mimma malakat aymanukum min fatayatukum al mu'minat, then they should marry from amongst the bond women that are in the custody of the believers, the believing bond women. They should be believing bond women. Wallahu a'lamu bi imanikum. Allah Ta'ala saying, Allah Ta'ala is all knowing about your iman. Means that the real thing to look at in marriage is iman. Don't even look that she's a bond woman. Allah Ta'ala knows that you're both iman. Ba'dakum min ba'ad. Each and every one of you are from one another. You're from the brethren and community of mu'mineen and mu'minat. You're equal in this respect that you have iman. And the fact that you're equal in iman is more worthy to consider than the fact that you are free and she is a slave. So this shows you the Islamic concept of class. The class division, socioeconomic strata, income level means nothing when compared to our parity and our iman. And if the Quran is saying that you can marry a woman who is a slave, then for, again, potential mother-in-laws to insist that Hamibas defense ki larki chahiye, Hamibas lams ki larki chahiye, and you sold them a wonderful girl and they don't take her for that reason, then they are going against Quran going against the spirit of Qur'an, so maybe not going against the commandment of Qur'an, so maybe not sinning in that sense. But when you go against spirit of Qur'an, it's a failure. 
to become the type of Quranic insan that Allah Ta'ala wanted us to be. Alright. فَنْكِهُونَ بِإِذْنِ أَهْلِهِنَّ You should marry them by permissions of their ahl means their masters. In other words, when I said it, that overall in the custody of believers, there may be a bondswoman who is in the possession of X, and you want to marry her. Somebody else is her master. So just, so you need the permission of her master to marry her. Right? Okay? This also, by the way, suggests what I had mentioned to you earlier, that what's between her and her master had to be something that was something that was of her consent, because otherwise then it wouldn't have any meaning that you could marry a bondwoman who belonged to another Muslim. And when you marry such a woman, ujurahunna. So here Allah Ta'ala, so those who know ujur, the same word that was up there, right? And it's clear it's talking about marriage. I don't know, maybe they're going doing in mutta with bondwoman as well. And give them their complete meher, bil ma'roof, with what is known to be fair and proper. Muhsanatin ghayri musafihat. Above you saw it in the male. If you see it, muhsinina ghayri musafihin. Here it's coming for the female. Muhsanatin ghayri musafihat. That means that which of the, which, which believing female bond woman should you marry? The one who is chaste and not the one who is lewd. Obviously the one who is chaste means that the master and her, there's nothing going on between them. Right? The one who is chaste, not the one who is lewd. وَلَا مُتَّخِذَاتِ أَخْدَانِ And not the one who takes lovers in secret. What does this mean? That apparently there were some bondswomen who fell into the sin of prostitution. Unfortunate, it's a sin that exists in this world. As some of these Westerns like to romantically euphemize this as the oldest vice of man, right? So also in the Muslim empire, right, there were such things. And so some of the slave women used to do that. Maybe as, a, again, maybe as a ways to earn, Allah alam, why? Maybe to earn money or for whatever reasons people do this type of activity. So here Allah SWT is also giving an ishara that don't be enamored by a woman of this kind. And this has a lesson for us. That we should also not marry on the basis of secret love or our secret lovers or on the basis of secret affairs. And sometimes they may even translate it for you in English as secret affairs or secret lovers. Loose conduct. Okay. Alright. So you wouldn't want to... Uh, it's a greater lesson that we shouldn't marry on that basis. We marry on the basis of chastity. Right? We identify one another within the bounds of haya. Alright. فَإِذَا أُحْسِنَّ Once... They are entered into marriage. فَإِنْ أَتَيْنَا بِفَاهِشَةٍ And after that they do an infidelity. Which means the ultimate infidelity like adultery. فَعَلَيْهِنَّ نِسْفَ مَا عَلَى الْمُحْسَنَاتِ That what will happen, فَعَلَيْهِنَّ the, the, the punishment that will be prescribed for them will be half that of the free women مِنَ الْأَذَابِ from punishment. So this is understood by the commentators of Quran to mean 50 lashes as opposed to 100. But this I'll explain to you more when we do the Tasir Surah Nur. And this is all of this, this permission and suggestion to marry a believing bondswoman was for that person amongst you who feared anat means transgression or adultery. It literally in English sometimes it means decadence. Decadence means falling in this case and falling into the sin of adultery from you. And if you do sabr, it would be better for you. So suggesting that if you do marry a free bondswoman, right, 
then because her iman, she has parity to you and you should do so and can do so. But do so if you fear that you may fall into some type of sin or decadence or infidelity or fornication. Rather, not adultery because you're unmarried, fornication. But if you have suburb, that is better for you. So this actually is a golden ayah for all of us and everybody, especially who's unmarried, right? If you can have sabr, it is better for you. So you can recite this ayah. You can make this your screensaver to protect you from internet, to protect you from other things. You should think that when you feel the urges come up inside of you, then you could add underneath it, and you could put these two eyes and recite these two eyes. You should read Quran is the best ta'weez and the best nuskha. If you recite Quran with feeling and meaning, right? means that if you know the meaning, you recite it knowing the meaning, and you try to get your heart to feel the feeling, it can stop you from the feelings of desire. What we would do is we use du'as and ayat and dhikr without the meaning, without the feeling. But the nafs is giving you the feeling of desire. So the feeling of desire is to be countered by feelings that are born from Qur'an. Right? So that is one inshallah niyat that all of you should have in these courses. Right? Kunur Rabbaniyin. That you want to learn enough feelings of enough meanings of enough ayat that those feelings enter your heart and protect, guide you to the good feelings and protect you from the evil feelings or the feelings that lead to sin. Wallahu, Ghafuru Rahim and Allah subhanahu is all forgiving, all merciful. So here Allah subhanahu then I'll just do two, three ayahs with you up to 28 and Allah ta'ala concludes all of these injunctions. Yuridullahu and Allah subhanahu irada and His wish and His intent. لَيُبَيِّنَ lakum That Allah subhanahu may clearly explain lakum Lam is for nafa here for your benefit, for your sake. Allah ta'ala did all of this so He could explain for your benefit. وَيَهْدِيَكُمْ And so Allah subhanahu may guide you. سُنَنَ الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِكُمْ So Allah subhanahu may guide you concerning the ways that pass. In other words, those pre-Islamic things that you shouldn't be doing. So Allah may guide you about those. وَيَتُوبَ alaykum, And that's what Allah Ta'ala may have tawbah upon you. May accept your tawbah. May relent upon you. May send His forgiveness upon you. وَاللَّهُ alimun hakim, And remember again that Allah Ta'ala is all-knowing, all-wise when He designed and laid out and guided us to His injunctions. وَاللَّهُ يُرِيدُ أَنْ يَتُوبَ alaykum, And in fact, Allah Ta'ala's irada is that He wants to relent to you and accept your tawbah. وَيُرِيدُ الَّذِينَ يَتَّبِئُونَ الشَّهَوَاتِ and so Allah Ta'ala wants Yatuba alaykum that He wants to accept your tawbah. And those, Alladina yattabi'una shahawat, and those who follow their desires, their lusts, their whims, their wishes, what do they wish? They wish antamilu maylan adhima, they wish to turn you away to make you deviant. Maylan adhima, a gross deviance. So this you can think there are two forces operating on you. And Allah is mentioning this in connection to haya and fasha. Let me do the next ayah and then I'll explain this. Yuhidullahu an yukhaffifa ankum. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to relieve you, lighten you, unburden from you. وَخُلِكَ insanu ذَعِيفًا But know that indeed humanity was created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala weak. Now all of this has rubbed to the ayahs that were coming before, which has to do with haya. Chastity, fidelity, purity, staying within the bounds of nikah. So number one, Allah Ta'ala is saying that Allah Ta'ala has made humanity weak in the sense that they have extremely strong desires that sometimes make them want or sometimes make them go outside the hudud, outside the boundaries of permissible. 
And there are two forces then that are working on a person. Look at this fascinating tug of war. On the one side, Wallahu yuridu an yatuba alaykum. On the one side is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to accept your tawbah. He wants to have you rightly guided. He wants you to be in ma'roof. He wants you to be chaste. He wants you to be in purity. And on the other side, there's going to be forces. Alladina yattabi'una shahawat. Forces that follow desires that they want. Antamilu maylan adima. They want to deviate you. What does that mean? So one force can be peer pressure. One force is media. One force is movies. One force is TV. One force is music. One force is fashion. All of this is there to try to make you divert and become deviant from the pure chastity that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants from you. Second way is one force is out there to make you not even feel remorse over your desires. The koi haraj wala forces. And Allah ta'ala wants it, and it is no harm. And Allah ta'ala wants that you should feel the sting of your sin, so you make istighfar and ask him for tawbah, so that he sends his maghfirat and mercy upon us. And you will feel, find Allah Akbar, there's so many, and this is sort of the last ayah we will do, you will find that there's so many forces out there. And the biggest one of them for this English educated class of Pakistan is westernization, secularization, liberalization, modernization. These four are trying. And I will tell you, being a professor at one of your elite universities for six years, every single year the situation of the freshmen was worse. And it turns out that every single year the halat, especially just, I'm talking about the specific benchmark of haya. I'm talking about the benchmark of haya is worse than the O levels, A levels every year. In my last year at that university, students were convicted in D.C. of things that I would never even have imagined in my first year at that university. And many parents don't really, they're oblivious to what's going on. But there's a group of people in their 30s and 40s who are happy. They're little shayateen. They're happy about what's going on. They encourage students to this. Some instructors even engage in activities like this with their students. It's a known fact, and it was sort of not spoken about with the professors. Absolute, I'm not engaging in any ilzam. Absolute fact, I know this happened. So it's a problem, a big problem in your edu- and in these education, the English language medium, educational institutions of this country, illa except a few of them, who have been blessed by Allah Subhanahu to have administrators, principals, deans, heads, who have some level of at least sometimes conservatism in them, and some of them even have some level of taqwa and spirituality in them. But otherwise, increasingly, the heads of departments, deans, chancellor, vice chancellors of these institutes are not all of them, not to slander all of them, not accusing all of them, not a blanket, but many, many more and more are become people who not only themselves have no regard at all for the Islamic concept of haya and chastity, but they increasingly make a mockery of it in the classroom, in their lessons, in the environment. And that's why I would really say that I've not found four-walled places or individual pieces of land in this country. That, and you would think that places of education are supposed to be places of tarbiyah. But I will tell you that the least haya, if you want to find those places which have the incidence of the most shocking violations of Islamic haya, it is none other than the English language medium educational institutions of this country. Again, not all of them, not every one of them. In fact, I will tell you even shockingly, Right, And actually I should maybe make this point equally strongly if not stronger. My own experience now 
is that the Urdu language educational institutions of this country and their desire to copy their idols, which is the English language education of this country, are as now as great and as growth violators. Allah, when I was in England, somebody showed me this video of one of your TV programs. I don't even want to say its name. I was stunned. I couldn't believe it. Where there's this guy with really long hair and he's making people do all types of dares. And it was mostly people from the Urdu educated type or Urdu speaking type people who were there. And overall, you have a massive, you will find billboards today that you couldn't have seen 10, 15 years ago. You will find ads today on TV that you couldn't have thought of 10 years ago. You will find Sunday Times and Sunday magazines and fashion experts of this fashion, excerpts of these English language newspapers. And it's so, it's shameless. It's all about who's who. Who's in the in club? Who's gossiping about who? It's crazy. It's just, it's, it's in every sense a violation of Islamic norms. It's a violation of etiquette. People in America would scoff at this. It's like they're all trying to be the next Britney Spears of Pakistan. And there should be otherwise well-respected, educated ladies of Pakistan. So it's to, that's the force. And what do they want? Look at Allah Ta'ala said. They're trying to make you, what was it? Malan Adima. They want to divert you. Adheem diversion. When you are considered to be distract, diverted from Haya. That same Allah subhanahu ta'ala who called the azab of Jahannam adheem, that same Allah in same Qur'an called this deviance from haya adheem. That it's a severe, severe abnormality, dysfunctionality. And we have now young men and women who have this all types of abnormal, dysfunctional activities that they're engaged in. So we have to try to make ourselves people of haya, people of tahara, people of tazkiyah, people of tarbiyah, people of piety, chastity. These were words in the English language in their vocabulary because they also had this reality once upon a time. Now for them it's just words. And unfortunately, increasingly for us as well, these Arabic words such as haya, such as taqwa, such as tahara, even our own youth of our ummah are also just becoming words. And if you make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and if you want it, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will grant it to you. And remember that sabr, that sabr, that patient endurance, istiqamat, himma, strength to bear through it. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala send his madad and nuswat on all of us. May he send his forgiveness on all of us for all of our past transgressions. May he guide those who remain outside the fold of his guidance. And may he repel those forces of deviation and those who wish to deviate others. أن الحمد لله رب العالمين سبحان ربنا وبحمد الله وصلي على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم يا الله يا رب الكريم we have studied about the ma'mulat يا الله not only are we so weak and lacking in our ibadat we are so weak and lacking in our ma'mulat يا رب الكريم we are sitting here as the worst of husbands the worst of wives the worst of fathers the worst of mothers يا الله we are sitting here as the most unchaste of young men the most unchaste of young women Ya Allah, we are completely lacking in our sabr. We are lacking in our himma. Ya Allah, we are indeed as zayf as you stated us to be in Quran. But Ya Allah, you said in Quran al-Kareem that your tawbah is lazim on that person who when they make a sin out of the emotions of being overcome by the desires of their nafs, that Ya Allah, if we make tawbah to you, that Ya Allah, indeed we will find you and discover you to be all relenting, all forgiving, all merciful. Ya Allah, we ask and turn to you in the barakah of Qur'an, in the barakah of your 
kalam, in the barakah of your ahkam, that Ya Allah, we ask that you accept our tawbah on this day. Each and every one of us begs you for forgiveness for all of the violations of chastity all of the acts of impurity, all of the moments of impurity, Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, hum jaysay bhe sabro ko ba sabr bana, hum jaysay bhe hayayon ko ba haya bana, hum jaysay bhe taqwa ko ba taqwa bana, Ya Rabbi Kareem, maaf karna tujhe sajta hai, maaf karna tujhe pasand aata hai, maaf karna tujhe aine zaat hai, Ya Rabbi Kareem, hum jaysay gunaugaro ko maaf farma, hume in hidayat ko اپنے سینے پر باندھنے کی توفیق عطا فرما اپنے زندگی کو انہی کے مطابق گزارنے کی توفیق عطا فرما اور ایک دوسرے کو پوری معاشرت کو ان ہدایات کے پیار اور نرمی کے ساتھ دعوت کرنے کی توفیق عطا فرما رب کریم امت مسلمہ کے نوجوان لڑکے اور لڑکیوں پر اپنی خصوصی رحمت نازل فرما جو بھی قوت طاقتیں ان کو آپ کے راستے سے دور لانے کی کوشش کر رہے ہیں یا رب کریم ان طاقتوں کو پھیر دیجئے ان کو کمزور کر دیجئے ان لڑکے اور لڑکیوں کو مضبوط ایمان عطا کر دیجئے اپنے دین کو لطف عطا فرما سجدہ کو سرور عطا فرما عبادت کی مزہ عطا فرما قرآن کی حلاوت عطا فرما دعا کی لذت ان کو عطا فرما ذکر کے اطمینان ان کو عطا فرما سرات مستقیم کا امن اور سکون نصیب فرما اور ان کی برکت اور ان کی عوض میں باقی جو بے حیائی اور فحشاہی اور ناجائز لذات ہیں یا رب کریم ہم ان لذات سے توبہ کرتے ہیں ہم سے ان کو چھین دیجئے اور اپنے حقیقی لذت عطا کر دیجئے یا خفی اللطفی ادرکنا بلطفک الخفی ربنا تکمل منا انکا انت السمیع العلیم وطوب علینا انکا انت التواب الرحیم وصل اللہ تعالی علی حبیبہ سیدنا محمد وعلی آلہ وآصحابہ اجمائی برحمتك يا أرحم الراحمين آمين